Welcome to the Great Base Tennis Podcast. I'm Andy Fitzell, your co-host alongside Steve Smith. Episode 28. In this episode, we're answering questions. Q&A, round two. We did a Q&A session, I think, uh, early on. Yes, this was number so two. We're going for round two here. We've got a few questions sent in and maybe some comments as well. Always some nice comments that we get through social media, comments and questions that I answer on the daily. You know, people ask me what I do. Yeah. Steve, what do you do for a living? I fight ignorance every day. <laughs> yeah. I fight ignorance every day. I've definitely two, used two that levels, before. Two levels of ignorance. I don't know, and I don't know, I don't know. Yeah. But the effort is put forth. We're trying to help tennis teaching. So we tease. I learned this from Weston Fairchild. There's no such thing as a dumb question, just a question asked by a dumb kid. Yeah. Ask questions. All right. <clears throat> question number one. If a junior player comes to you who is ranked top five in the world for their age, but their swings have severe deficiencies, yet they look similar to many tour players or players on tour, how would you go about convincing them that making changes would be beneficial? Is there ever any concern as a coach that by changing what feels comfortable to them may be more successful than what would be efficient? Well, I think any question, I, I worked in academia for, for 10 years. I was the head of the department. You take the question, they look similar to many players on tour. Mm -hmm. It comes down to, from a biomechanical standpoint, you know, 90, 95% the same at the impact point. Yeah. You have to understand, again, the dimensions of the court, physical loss, with... Um, it's not simple. It's not a simple question. It's a, it's a great question. But it comes down to, um, there's so many variables. How long we have the opportunity to coach the player? Say in pro sports, a pro coach generally starts, doesn't mean it's going to, he's going to last the first year before getting terminated. It's they'll have a contract, a multi-year contract. In theory, college tennis coaches have four, junior college have two, four years, two years. You know, when you're working with someone um, it's, that's top five ITF, again, that's the first question. How long are you working with them? And then there's more questions. When's their next tournament? Yeah. Uh, when it comes down to, it's no different than if someone is ranked top five in their section, is you go about it the same way, mm -hmm. is you ha have to film, you have to skill test, you have to film the playing matches. People need to realize that top five, top five in the ITF, they have to understand that there's so many ins and outs to that. And it, it, it continually changes like everything, but there's so many players that I've worked with that have been top five in ITF. And then they went the college route and they played top five on their team. You know, was it where they were five, where they were four, they're a highly ranked player yeah. in, the, in the ITF circuit. And they initially didn't go the college route. You know, and many, many young players that do really well in the ITF, ITFs in America, the burden is on the family to get to those tournaments. Yeah. Now, in Europe, I mean, there, there are more tournaments, closer proximity, more ITF tournaments. Yeah, way easier. With, um, so how does someone even achieve that ranking? Many times a federation is, is paying the bill. Mm -hmm. You know, our federation, the USTA, I've, I've worked with, uh, many players 
you know, they, they work directly with me or they've worked with coaches that I've trained and they've left the Federation, even though it's free, even though the USTA is picking up the tab for the players to play all over the world because, mm-hmm. um, you know, what's being done about their service motion, you know, what's being done about their tennis game. Yeah. I do think that, you know, people that haven't worked with high level juniors, typically what happens is the junior doesn't change, but all the people around them change. They start treating the young player like they're a superstar. I think that's one of the great things about Rafael Nadal. When it comes to his team, he's just, he's just a spoke in the wheel. Yeah. Um, You know, they're renting a a home, uh, you know, with uh, the suburbs uh, of Wimbledon, Wimbledon village and, it's his turn to do the dishes. He's doing the dishes, even though he's playing the, the Wimbledon final the next day. Yeah. Um, I do think that if he took one stroke, one stroke at a time, but, but definitely film their game. Mm-hmm. Um, and you want to, you just want to have the information. You want to rule out guesswork, rule out opinion, but to, to win the player over, if you can, and again, make it simple. It's, it's the delivery of information. Mm-hmm. You know, it's um, from Dr. Jack Roppel. It's not biomaxi mechanics. It's not bio no mechanics. It's bio mini mechanics. It's yeah. an art art form. I've ter- I've trained many many excellent tennis teachers. Became excellent technicians in the industry. Ate them up and sped them out because they didn't understand jackocracy. They didn't know how to work the waters um, to uh, to deal with. You know, jockocracy. I mean, you got you got to deal with. Okay, the the parents have a role in it. They're still a junior. There's the agents involved. Um, the the typical scenario of the ITF. There needs to be an urgency at every level. An urgency to get better. What are you going to do with every day? Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of people that are going to be in the player's circle that think they can skyrocket to the top. Um, people get advice, for example, to avoid their weakest surface. If somebody wants to be a professional tennis player, they should play a clay court season, for example. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you how many young players I've worked with that have been top 10 in the NCAs. And I've told them in the summers or told them even before they try to play the pro circuit to go play in France. Yeah. You know, the money, the, 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 the tournaments are not with, for ATP or WTA points, but Typically, they don't do it. They start ch- chasing, trying to build up pro ranking. Yeah. I don't think there's really much common sense involved for a young player trying to build up their ranking points in the summer if they're going to go back to school. Um, people are told to skip doubles, you know, skip clay, skip doubles. Um, most of the opportunities that are given to an ITF player, they're taken away from the developmental coach and the federation coach. Um, they there many times they're just a glorified sparring partner that becomes the coach overnight. And when it does come down to every player needs to examine and everyone who's supporting that player, the parent, the coach, the agent, are there holes in their game? And because someone's successful in the ITF circuit doesn't mean they're going to be successful yeah. 
on the ATP or WTA. Yeah. I mean, we say it all the time, every level of play, winning is confusing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, going back to the question that they, they look similar to many players on the tour, you don't want to be intimidated by players on the tour. With um, many of the players on the tour, uh, for example, they can't transition to the net. Yeah, many, yeah. Many, most. <laughs> um, you know, they're not playing doubles anymore. Yeah. Uh, the top players with, um, you know, I just think about legends of the game. You know, we talk about Braden all the time. Braden, in many ways, his mentor was Jack Kramer. And I, th- th- I'm always baffled by that in tennis where there's really not much respect from a historical standpoint, you have to really respect what Roger Federer and people in his corner have done with, say, the Labor Cup and bringing recognition to to Rod Laver. Um, Rod Laver, the way he played, I mean, old school. It's like let's let's go back to basics, mm-hmm. you know. And players are playing, you know, one dimensional tennis. I with was, go ahead. I was just going to say, for me, I mean, you know, the, the question is okay. Ranked top five in the world, juniors. If it's a highly ranked junior, highly know rank pro even if it's a club player i think the same thing it's difficult to get a club player to to change you know i don't want to change um but it really comes down to injury prevention is one of the things that we tell our players that that come in to work with us is the the number one reason why you want to make changes technically is injury prevention So, so efficiency and then if you can show them hey you know down the road you know i look at like I saw a video of Denis Shapovalov today, and it's just he's got a big palm up, you know, but he's got this kind of loosey forearm action at the end, so he bails him out. You know, he can hit the ball really hard. He's, he's strong. He's fit. But you just think, man, is that shoulder going to hold up for his tosses? And then he's got his palm up. So I think as you talk about injury prevention is a, is a big thing to go, hey, you know, down the road. And then also will it hold up under pressure from one level to the next? Like you said, okay, you may be top 200 in the world, but are you going to be able to be top 50 or top 100? Or are you going to maximize your potential? Because at certain levels, it's going to break down. So you may have a good tournament here or there, and then hopefully you don't get injured. So I think that's the number one thing for me is you go, hey, if you keep doing it this way, there's a chance for injury. you know. And the number two, is it, is it going to hold up under pressure? And I think it's easy when, obviously, our background with application, but also just some basic concepts, you know, in all the VIX research where you go, hey, the physics involved here, you know. You said the other day there was a player that came in and he goes, well, you know, you know, so-and-so does it this way. And it's like, hey, I would go with science, <laughs> you know, just go with science, go with... No, so yeah, a young player that has been at a name academy, probably easily one of the top three recognized tennis academies in America. He's there for three years and somehow he ends up on our doorstep and there's no difference between working with that player and what we what we would recommend is working with a player at the ITF level with trust. Are they going to trust you? And I know you've been on the tour. Like, how, how long are you going to work with this player? I think one thing, just to go through case studies, but when someone's actually, you know, they're, they're currently out there and they're playing pro tennis, it's not really... Um, our position to talk about their game. And, and also, too, and we've, you've, people find that, okay, we're criticizing the pros. No, it's not like telling, it's not like we're saying the pros should change their game. It's just studying tennis, 
when it comes down to, uh, I think, you know, Manny Diaz, the coach at the University of Georgia, and we talked about Welby Van Horn. He was taught to play by Welby. I was taught to teach by Welby. And we're talking about John, John Isner's backhand volley. Mm-hmm. Well, he's been the, you know, the top or one of the top Americans for close to a decade now. I think of Andy Roddick. Um, I used to say that Andy Roddick's game is like Swiss cheese, has some holes in it. Roger Federer's game is like American cheese. It doesn't have holes in it. Um, coming back to the, the uh, but Andy Roddick, he's great. But all you, if you listen to Andy Roddick, what does he say? Yeah, he's like, my backhand's crummy. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and, and then why is it crummy? Yeah. Um, I was around Roddick. Um, we could have a podcast just on Andy Roddick. Uh, I coached in Texas for 10 years and had a really interesting uh, we should just talk about this program I had for 10 years. But the guinea pigs that we had did really well. Yeah. So um, at that time, there was no 10s, but there was 12s, 14s, 16s, and 18s. At that time, Texas had 17 million people. We think uh, we thought, okay, there's eight titles to win. And w- we were hoping to win four. Four kids out of, say, a group of less than 12 to go win Texas sectionals. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, our first guinea pig, and especially because I met his father the first week I was there, um, David Stanley, his son Clayton Stanley. When, um, so Clayton lost to, he lost to John Roddick. And I remember Craig Tiley, uh, who now runs Tennis Australia, the tournament director, um, he was assisting us. He was a student and a student assistant, and you know, he, he was there seven years. So, he was at that sectionals, uh, Wichita Falls, pretty hot place uh, oh, yeah. in June. So I said, tell me about John Roddick. And I had not seen John Roddick. And he goes, he's really good, but his brother's going to be amazing. Mm. And at that time, Andy was seven. And I said, well, Tyler, why do you say his brother's going to be seven? He said, there was a backboard right by the tournament desk. Mm. He hit the backboard all day, so hot. And the only time he stopped was when he um, kids would walk by to enter to answer to uh, submit their scores. And here's a seven year old, yeah. just going to these older kids. Hey, who won? Yeah. What was the score? Was the hey, score? who won? What was the score? And um, then, so they were in Austin, the Roddick family, when I was in uh, Tyler, Texas. So then I went to Boca Raton, and they were in Boca Raton. Um, I was running the Seguzo Bassett Tennis Academy, so. Roddick, um, he just shows up. We're in a kid by the name of Jason Hazley, and there's another kid named Brooks. Father was a coach, and so the three of them just are playing. And there was others, but they're playing sets. So I didn't coach them for two seconds, but I just watched them compete. Mm-hmm. And he was just raw, and you know, then I mean, he has a, had a palm up serve. His mother, we have a film of him saying his serve was pitiful. Yeah. But I think when it comes down to if someone's top five in the ITF, most likely they've got a lot going for them physically, genetically. Um, they're most likely a warrior. They're, plus they've had all sorts of opportunities and yeah. they know how to travel. Um, but the ITF is not the ATP. And um, so, you know, I just, with Roddick, I can just jump ahead. And um, so I did some work where I was hired to train coaches at their academy 
and you know, John was not there, but because he, he was transitioning, um, he was Chris coaching his brother and Jimmy Connors was part of coaching his brother at that time. And then shortly after that, they sold the academy to some people that I had worked with. And um, so I saw John at the US Open. Then I said, hey, John, I used to coach against you. And I just mentioned Chad Clark and Clayton Stanley. And he said, victory or death. So but when it comes down to, you know, this question about top five, um, I remember my son Connor in practice taking one set from one of the Roddick. He had, they had some Russian players. And it was just practicing. My son goes, he's top five in the world. I said, Connor, you played him for one set. I said, the difference is if I put my hand on his shoulder and my hand on your <laughs> shoulder, he's a man and you're a boy. So that has a lot to do with it too. You know, the, the growth spurt right into the, into the 18s. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that's where it's, it's a matter of interviewing players. But I do think that um, it, it's amazing. Every level you go up and, you know, you, to be, you know, courtside Wimbledon, we, the, the elite players, to, I think they're they're doing so much better with nutrition, so much better with the physical side. You know, people are throwing numbers at them with analytics, but um, it does get to the point where there's really a question on trust. And you know, they're making say say someone like a, a Sam Query, like 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 erotic. You know, he had holes in his game. Mm-hmm. With I remember meeting with some USDA officials years ago and said, well, the Sam queries of the future, you don't want to have them not have a backhand volley. Yeah. So, um, again, like, you know, top American kids right now, you could turn the clock back. Mm-hmm. You know, I just, just mentioned something on um, a Facebook post. Jenny Brady, what a great player, 25 years old. But you could go back. So she's working with some German people. Um, really turned the situation around. Lost weight, got super fit. Yeah. And she's just, you know, I mean, just was in a Grand Slam final. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you, people do get to a certain point where you have to have to work within a player's game. But if you were to take the chronological order, but re- reverse it, so you go back to the beginning. Yeah. So she was at Everett's. You know, so back then, okay, that's where... You know, to change how she returns serve with how she initially turns on the forehand side because she struggles against Osaka's 120 mile hour serve. Yeah, but that's just speculation, forwards backwards. When it comes down to um, a college coach, you know, okay, they they've recruited a 19, an 18, 19 year old, and um, it is more of an art form to work within someone's game. So to re- revamp someone's game. Yeah. But it's, it's like Braden's line. You know, we just tell it right to the kid by filming and skill testing is you have no game. Yet we know you're top 10 in your section, but relative to your goals, there's too many holes. Yeah. Um, you know, Vic, you. Vic, Vic would go in the back room and go, what game? What game? <laughs> <laughs> the kid has no game. Well, I've heard you say it. Many times, is, and I think what's hard for us, a lot of coaches, where they may see these inefficiencies or holes in players' games, and, and you just think, well, you're wanting to go set sail, and you have holes in the boat. It's like, okay, 
good luck, you know, and so it's hard. And then, and then obviously the injury prevention um, side of things, but look at a player like Novak Djokovic, you know, he was number three in the world and f- whoever it was, I'm not sure, you know, got a hold of him and it's like, okay, you've got this massive low elbow palm up on your serve. And, you know, he made the changes and then it struggled for a little bit while he was making the change. So it's always tough to make change, but then following after that, he's improved his serve so much. So trust, like you said, and, and it goes, a lot of it goes to credibility so, you know, we've had some experience working with players that have done well. So there's some credibility, as some people said, enough credibility to choke a horse. But then the other typical situation, and, and this is one of the questions later tonight in this podcast, is, you know, playing ability. And so for so many coaches, it's like that's the instant credibility is if you were top 100 in the world, you're an instant coach, you know, because you were top 100 in the world or top 50 or whatever it is. Um, so the, the trusting comes in where a player is going to hire a Stefan Edberg. I could tell Roger all day long, Hey, go to the net more. Here's the statistics. You can do this. Da, da, da. Why is he going to listen to me? But Stefan Edberg's going to come in and say, Oh, yeah, Roger, why don't you go to the net more? He's like, Oh, okay, I'll do it. When it comes <laughs> that down, was a terrible accent. I mean, not, you know, <laughs> my not, Swedish, my Swedish accent, holy, 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 holy. I play with, but you know what I mean? Credibility. I mean, um, like you always say, it's just, not not necessarily if you're truthful, but whether you're believable or not. Well, even with a bio, um, if you're top 10 in the world, big time, mm. your bio to coach, top 100, top who, top 200. My son was ranked 200. <laughs> yeah. that, that, I always feel guilty about that. Like, oh man. That doesn't, that doesn't, that doesn't cut it if he was 100. Yeah. Um, knowledge and communication. Many times what happens is the person with the knowledge, they don't have the experience to communicate the knowledge. How do you talk to an athlete? Yeah. You know, how, how, at that level, and even knowing the right questions to ask. Yeah. With, um, you, we always tell people, you need to be able to come at it from all angles. You know, science, logic, imagery, um, you know, just- Humor. You know, but charting <laughs> matches, uh, yeah, humor. Uh, anger, guilt, manipulation <laughs> with um, the better the player, the more people have tried to um, present information to them, mm. the merchant of flesh. The, it's it's no different than at the grassroots level tournaments. At the grassroots level tournaments, there's people out there handing out business cards yeah. saying, I want to coach your kid. You know, they're the third base coach. They're looking at the kids can already play. And that's one of the biggest problems we have in tennis yeah. is people need to be able to teach beginners, Yeah, teach you know, teach the people that play at your place. Don't go, you know, recruit people. And, but the same thing, it's like the, the um, who has the exposure to the top players on the tour is the TV commentators first and foremost. And they get all sorts of opportunities through that. Um, with, it's like who, many times the wrong person's driving the bus. You know, it's like, well, who's driving the bus? And then if you look at someone's career, I think of uh, Sabatini, great athlete. She was number two in the world. And it's all, you know, you know, coming back to say a Sam Query, you know, is a guy averaging $20,000 a week? Yeah. I said, wait a minute, I'm going to change my game. And, yeah. uh, you know, so in grassroots level tennis, a kid is afraid of going back. Um, I mean, one, they're afraid of going to the net, but they don't want to go back, you know, say, gee, I've, I changed my game. It, 
the pain of change and the pain of losing. The pain of change is greater because the ego. Yeah. Well, I normally beat that guy, junior kid. I beat yeah. that kid 6'3", 6'2", 6'2", 6'3". So most people don't change. He changed my game, and oh, there's a threat I may, I may lose. I lose yeah. um, with, but so knowledge and commu- communication, there's a lot of times there's not that much education involved. With pro tennis right now, um, federations are hiring former players. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the former players, what federations have a training program for that coach? You know, in this country, I always think the best, best model is the, uh, is the NFL. Um, you know, it's, you know, I mean, football players, they, they actually redshirt. They go to college and they're going to be there for one year. They do everything the team does but play in official games where the top tennis kids are going, well, coach, I'll show up in January and I'll play one semester. Yeah. So what happens is that the individual becomes bigger than the program. Well, then is, is there a program? Is there a program that the player can trust? Yeah. Um, you know, so many top U.S. kids, they go to college for one year with, you know, you talk to a U.S. kid, uh, I'd say, you know, international, any, any tennis player, you go, well, you know, this, you need to go backwards to go forwards. And it's like, whoa, um, really there's one type of point. There's ATP and WTA. Um, so again, the physicality, some kids are, they're, they're not as physically developed. Uh, some kids, the federations are paying the bill and they've, they've been the, to these different tournaments, ITF tournaments, and they have yeah. the points. Um, I think one thing that's uh, very interesting is, you know, the path of the teenage sensation or the late bloomer. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like Tissy Poss. I mean, I'd love to watch the guy play. With great spirit, great fight, um, the fitness. When it comes down to Patrick Mortagola, um, I know that's not how his name is pronounced, but you're doing great. Yeah, <laughs> I have another way to say it. But Patrick, Patrick, um, he likes the kid. He sees him on YouTube. He here's the credit card, and, and yeah. you know he, he becomes the agent. You know, yeah. you know people think of him as having an academy, but um, in the end, what are the holes? It's lots of times to fix the holes, but the thing is, is that um, when do the holes surface? And yeah. you know, everybody's important. Everybody's really I say every almost everybody in that inner circle, that one kid who's top five, hypothetically, is how's he doing in the next tournament? And there's always the next season, and you have to think, okay, once you get to the ATP level. Um, like, so, you know, what are you, you going to do to get there and to stay there? Um, with Can you fix the holes? I always say, okay, I think I could take a lawnmower apart, but could I put it back together? <laughs> could I put it back together? And um, that's one thing is that a lot of times the glorified coach, they're not going to tinker, even try to tweak technique because they they just know yeah they just know um they just know and um the the is the kid lost in their current status you know they do they um 
So they're they're doing well in the ITF. So they're not just in that small pond where they're playing in a, yeah. a state or a province section. But then are the people around that kid? What are they thinking? And I think a lot of times there's just too much hype, and you know, if, um, so no, I, I think really when it comes right down to it, you work with a top kid the same way you do with the beginning kid. It comes down to basics. Yeah. The message is delivered differently. Coming back, okay, so the Andy Roddick, you know, I've mentioned his name. He's a guy who yells out, "I can't volley," you know, "My volley sucks." Yeah. And um, he's the one who said, Roger Fetter's an artist, a technician. I just hit the crap out of the ball. Yeah. Um, but I think he would have been very difficult to coach because he's so competitive. You know, Rick Macy says, I knew the guy would be great because we we're playing flag football. He's the smallest kid and he goes down and he just tackles the first person. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I say ITFs right now, to, for many, that, that means idiots traveling foolishly they're in the wrong place playing the wrong tournament and um it's so expensive you know i mean the orange bowl and the orange bowl there's a junior orange bowl and the orange bowl most american kids don't know that the junior orange bowl is a usda tournament all you got to do is count the number of countries and then tennis is a microcosm of life i mean like say spain they've had a struggling economy for a long time you're not going to see a lot of spanish kids at I mean, the IT, the, the Orange Bowl for 16s and 18s and ITF. Mm-hmm. Um, if they're there, they're usually going to be a really wealthy kid. And that's unfortunate, but typically, yeah. the more money the kid has, the worse they play. I mean, it's just hungry dog hunts best. Yeah. So um, with, um, yeah, you really need the endorsement. If someone says, you need to listen to this person. And, but you, most, most often someone gets the top IT, uh, the top five. And um, how did they get there? Is that, is that evaluated? And can they still be coached? And that's where tennis kids, now I mentioned ice hockey quite a bit because I grew up in an ice hockey family. Everybody in pro hockey now can fly. Mm. They can skate. The game, the, I, pro hockey has improved so much more than pro tennis. And, you know, people are saying, well, the level of play, yes, when you turn your TV on, you're watching people who are playing on TV. Mm-hmm. But when you go out and you watch how, how doubles is being played, like, say, at the futures level, mm-hmm. um, with, you know, the coaches aren't going to go, well, yeah, we're, we were better 10 years ago than we are now. There's a lot of psychology involved, but I think of uh, Coach K. Krzyzewski from Duke Basketball. The players today in basketball, you say, well, they're bigger and they're stronger. Um, you know, nutrition and what they're doing in the gym, the science that's helped out in that area, mm-hmm. but they're not more athletic. They're not more athletic. You know, so, you know, like what Pistol Pete could do with a basketball, Pete Maravich mm-hmm. and Steph Curry, the game has changed with all the outside shot. But yeah. so again, I would say from a historical point of view that people don't really um, have enough respect for players from the past. Um, but, you know, I, I think you handle it the same. And um, I think once you have that experience, 
But I do think, you know, I don't know who asked the question, but many times um, people can even be in awe of a kid who's, you know, ranked in their section and it's the 12s. Yeah. Um, you know, Jose Garris said about the 12s, somebody has to win. <laughs> um, All right, well, that was pretty a pretty thorough answer, I think. Well, it's one of those things. Maybe we didn't answer it. Maybe we should just go the short answer. No, Boom. I mean, I think we, you know, you covered that from A to Z. You know, injury prevention for me again is a, is a big one, and and uh, yeah, though the longevity of someone's career. Yeah, and you know, it's like a baseball pitching coach. I mean, they're counting the number of pitches. They're looking at the mechanics, like how long is his career going to be? Yeah. Um, with um, as this arm, you know, arm. tennis. Unfortunately, and th- there's a few surveys. Few polls and tennis is not really high on on how well the sport is coached. Yeah, and has it really changed that much? I mean, with uh, I think a lot of times at the very elite level, there's a lot of you know romancing the player and massaging the player. You know, at the very very top, no, that's an entourage and and the the money that can be spent. Um, you know, when it comes down to people that have coached on the tour or co- people are coaching on a tour. Typically, okay, they're single. You're, they they don't have a, a spouse. They don't have children, and they um, they start at a very young. They start with a young players, so they're at the futures level, and they're pro, coaching the pro game. They're coaching pro players, and they just make make connections. But I'd say a lot of it is jackocracy. Craig Carden, you said this about world team tennis. You talk all day and you say nothing is, you know, then the other thing too is there's really no off season, but I'm always amazed what, what players do in the off season. It's like, oh, I'm going to get super fit. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Okay. That makes sense. It really, you know, take some time, take care of the body, but it's not like people go work on holes in the game. Yeah. Like say now with the pandemic, it's almost been a full year. So, you know, six months might be a good guess that people were out of tournament play for six months. Yeah. You know, the woman asked uh, on a podcast, I was listening to curious. He said he was working on his game. She said, oh, with your serve, when you come back, will you be serving and volleying? Yeah. And, you know, he kind of started a little bit, well, a little bit more. I mean, he was shocked at the question. Yeah. And, I mean, he's a fantastic tennis player. He's fun to watch. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, you really see Nick having somebody toss balls to him underhand. You know, he, he has his racket go down on the Slo- backhand slowing, volley. Slowing down. And okay, here's a, put, put a picture on this. Okay, Curios, you're going to sit down on the court. Your fanny's right on the court. You're going to put your legs out. Yeah. You're going to put your arm out like this. We're going to have you hit a backhand volley. I will do some crunches as well. You have sit up so your back doesn't hit the hard court. Yeah. And you're just you're just hitting backhand volleys like this. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, who would be in his inner circle that could say, you need to do this? Yeah. Bro. Bro. Hey, dude. Bro. But when it comes down to it... Um, you know, just like a junior is afraid of having their ranking go down. I mean, he's going to make, he, he's already, I'm sure he already has, he's going to make millions of dollars. Yep. Coming back to Jack Kramer about Sabatini is two in the world. And he said what she should do yeah. is find a junior coach and rebuild her game. She tossed way overhead. She had too much kick. Didn't you say like take a year off or something? Um, year off and change your game. He said this on TV, but then would you know? So then he told Vic Braid in, in conversation, and I was flattered, complimented. They say Vic goes, "I know just the guy." 
And he was talking about me, right? Yeah, with, uh, you're very too young. You, were you born when Sabatini was playing? Oh, yeah. So when it comes down to um, her, so much athleticism, so much athleticism, but can you convince someone to do that? Yeah. Um, you know, for 10 years, I was in charge of a junior college program for women. And there were some people that talked to us that ended up going to Texas and USC and Stanford because people were saying, you should just go there. And, you know, it's like, no, not one person said, yeah, okay, I'm going to do that. Um, I know you were talking to David Squire, uh, his son, Henry, and maybe this is, was, isn't fair to St. Leo, you know, Chad Barrett, who worked with us for five years, he coaches at St. Leo and Henry went on a visit. So here's a top junior. So I actually went on that visit, um, but he went, he's at Wake Forest now. And I said, well, this probably wouldn't be very nice, but you know what would really be best for your game is you should come here, St. Leo, and why don't you just come here and play with a wooden racket? Okay, you got, you're, we're going to play you at six, and you're going to, you know, you're six foot five. Uh, what's it, the American kids from uh, Nakashima from San Diego? Very mature. He's doing well. Yeah. Henry played him, played him competitively. The Germans didn't get him over your time. Not so much to get used to the hard court, but to get used to the humidity. Yeah. And um, at the U.S. Open. At the U.S. Open. So here's a guy who's six foot five, and um, he's playing one up, one back doubles. And it's like, really? I mean, or David, who's maybe you listen to this, like we always tease, he's a, the dumbest Aussie on the planet. But I mean, an Aussie, he's got his kid playing one up, one back. Go to the net. People are being too nice to people. Yeah. Um, you know, people talk about college tennis. Well, then in the college coaches, yes, come here and we'll help you and the alumni will help you and you can play pro tennis. And, you know, is that legal? Is that illegal? Does that ever happen? But do people do their homework and go, okay, here's A, B, C, University A, University B, University C. Mm-hmm. How many players have come out of that university and been ranked Top 300, top 200, top 100. Yeah. And, you know, it's not to take the air out of anybody's sales, but is college tennis really, are, are players really developing? And, you know, I go back to people, what's he talking about? The rule when freshmen couldn't play, that was a great rule. Mm. They worked for Stan Smith, they worked for Arthur Ashe. It'd you be know, nice for the coach, too, just knowing that no pressure, that, hey, you're going to come in and work on your game. No, I think the best thing for a player right now is um, they graduate from high school. They take a semester off. They go to school in January. And then they're part of the team. So there are people doing this in football all day long. They're going to school in January. They're, getting, they're living away from home now. They're on campus. They get used to college classes. And they don't have the, they don't have the challenge of making the lineup. So you think about, okay, they graduate in, say, June. Mm-hmm. So the whole year goes by, and they can work on their game. But now they've been in college, and a year goes by, and then they have until January. So they're looking at 18 months to make the lineup. Yeah, And the statistics are overwhelming. They're scary and frightening. If a kid goes to college and they don't make their lineup as a freshman, over 85% of the time, they never make the lineup. Mm. And, you know, 
People are going down the road they've never been down before. That's the parent or parents. That's the player. And also many times it's the coach. Now that I'm so old and Daniel Coyle says you should hire 60 and 70 year olds, is that, you know, um, when people ask me about different uh, age groups, you know, well, how did they do? You know, you can go back and say, well, that, how'd that crop of American top 10 juniors do from that two-year segment, you know? Um, how, you know, the Kalamazoo, many times Kalamazoo, I mean, how have done, how, uh, for listeners from overseas, that's the USTA 16s and 18s tournament that everybody loves, played at a small private school in Michigan, is many, most of the time a junior player, a, a player who has more of a junior game wins that than someone who has... They're playing pro style. They're playing aggressive tennis. Right. So it's more of a it's a junior event. I mean, fair enough. But yeah. um, with um, but let's go to the next question. All right, let's <laughs> we'll move on. Uh, tips for getting the racket closed on one handed backhand. A little simpler question. We put something on Facebook coming back to Tistipas. Love that guy. If he took his left hand and he pushed the racket down, yeah. Um, the left hand makes this movement like a little forehand. It starts up high, goes down, racket face is closed. His racket face behind him is on edge. So he can't let the racket free fall with gravity. He's got to pull it. I mean, he's a great player, but he ends up having a rotating socket, not a rising socket. Well, coming back to the first question, well, Tissipas is top five in the world. Yeah, exactly. You work with him the same exact way. Yeah. So, you know, but basically what they're going to say to you and me is, hey, Go sit in section F, get some popcorn. <laughs> and, you know, I'm not on the inner circle, but with, um, like, say, Patrick, you know, you know, it's obviously changed. You know, when I was visiting his place, it was the old place in Paris, and now he's in the south of France. But, you know, film and film again. Um, you know, what's going to happen to the player? It's going to look better, feel worse. Coming back to trust, you know, I think of that film with Tom Brady being told, Action, reaction, mm -hmm. use the front shoulder like a reactive break. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you know, he's, he's, his little kids are running around. He's in his backyard. He's throwing, he's working with a biomechanist. And the guy goes, now you need reps. Yeah. And it, but it's explained to him scientifically. And, but the person, you know, it's, you know, credibility means you're believable. Doesn't mean you're truthful. So, but he, he's working with an expert. Yeah. Um, you know, so can you get can you get a tissy pasta? I'm asked all this time. People, I'm asked all, all the time. People come and visit and go. How do you get these kids to hit a ball off a cone? Yeah. Um, you know, one time Junior Ore, I mean, very talented kid. I mean, he's so so fast. Yeah, you know, he had the speed of a wide receiver in the NFL, but he was a one dimensional baseliner. You know, now he plays some doubles. Um, you know, he he um, went to he. You know, he was brought to me for four days. He ended up staying for four months, came with his grandfather. And, uh, you know, he said, well, I've been hitting the ball off the cone. People remember that. It's like, this guy's got me hitting a ball off a cone. Yeah. Drop hitting balls in the alley. But, you know, do they know 19.1 degrees? Yeah. And, um, you know, again, he played Frantangelo. Frantangelo just won the French. And it was like, um, but the, the thing is, is that once someone makes a change, like I say, Tissy Poss, Someone, they got to close the racket face more on a one hand and backhand. They have to work on it all the time. Yeah. For, so this 10-year period, I've worked with juniors so much, but this 10-year period working with coaches, 
And it was certainly a learning experience. It was a shock. I mean, I went through uh, AA meetings with, with, with students. And you certainly uh, can learn so much from that. But it's like once you're an alcoholic, you're always an alcoholic. Once you have your racket on edge, you <laughs> so, can always no, have your racket But on the edge. traces of the old, the way yeah. the brain pro is programmed. And, um, Under pressure, you know, keep working it. Um, I think when I think of Tracy Old, I think of Raven Claussen. He was in the Australian Open final. Hmm. He's in the Wimbledon final. So he's very close, knocking on the door to win a, a Grand Slam doubles title. And he had a key backhand volley to get back on serve. Hmm. And he just, the term, knifed it. Hmm. I mean, he just went down. And but what, so what does happen? Cut the net. Yeah, he, he used to hack down, and we have it all on film. He used to hack down on his volleys. People yeah. watch him now. He, he's pretty fundamentally sound. Yeah, he's but um, the brain has, um, we always say, two sets of motor program with stress, and, and you revert back. So if someone's going to make a change, um, you know, you just have to know that here's the science, and you're going to do it over and over again, and you got to work on it. And, you know, it's just like, um, a musician, okay, I've got to learn this this move on the guitar, the piano. I got to do it over and over and over again. Drill, drill, drill. Yeah. Talking about Jim Lair, um, are you going to let that sucker in? Yeah. It's truth. Are you going to let it come into your story? I think um, the other, you know, just some basics tips for getting the racket closed in the one hand, or make sure you've got your grip you know, on the on the eastern or like we say the right side of one. But so that's going to affect the angle of the racket face. You talked about the left hand, the role of the left hand. Vic used to talk about Bjorn Borg and the, you know, he's a two-hander, but same idea of getting the racket below the ball, getting it down low to close the racket face. He would use the left hand to just push it down, push it down. And the other tip we give is just feel like your knuckles are pointed towards the ground. And it's not like you're going to really crank your, you know, tweak your wrist to force it, but generally the, the knuckles will be facing, you know, more towards the ground, like we would say, the palm down on the forehand side. I think but a tip from... Simple, uh, simple things like that. Peter Burwash, the index finger on the strings. So the left index finger is just yeah. racket maneuverability, racket head. Awareness. Awareness. Lendl and McEnroe both had a continental grip on the backhand side. Lendl turned his wrist down. Yeah. If you're not going to change your grip, change your wrist. wrist um, you know, the problem doesn't go away um, with, you know, traces of the old... You know, I think if what you should do with tennis players is study other sports. You know, so ice hockey, I mean, I've been to the Frozen Four, I mean, many times. Let me stop you just real quick. I mean, yeah, it shouldn't sound discouraging to someone to say the problem doesn't go away. You, you can change your motor program. You can change the signal. Um, but it takes a lot of reps. You know, you got to keep working at it, keep working at it. And then like always, like anything, you know, Kobe Bryant, Tiger Woods, all those players are always going to work on their basics. They're always going to work on fundamentals. I think that's. Yeah. When point. I say it doesn't go away. In other words, it can get back to haunt you. If you think it's a quick fix, it's, yeah. it's really, you, keep, you know, it's like, well, okay, stay this in is the course. This is a quick fix. I mean, with, uh, you know, I've done a lot of tennis teaching conferences and, you know, I mean, I learned this from many people, Braden, Vandermeer, Van Horn. Yeah. Come on out. I'll help you. And I can get somebody to hit the ball better in five minutes. Yeah. That's that's in a controlled fishbowl. Okay, you know, tilt it down. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, when I was about the Frozen Four, I mean, the, the players are still working on the same basic warm up drills. Same thing in basketball. I mean, 
that's where... Tell people what the Frozen Four is really quick. College hockey. It's like the final four in college basketball. Lou Holtz win. What's important now? Um, I've worked with, uh, I think, of so many uh, players who played in the NFL, coached their, ch- their children. Tony McGee. So he plays at Michigan, goes to Cincinnati, and he lines up the same on both sides. And one of the coaches, wasn't the head coach, goes, no, switch your feet. He goes, ah, oh, no, coach, I like to do it this way. He goes, do you know what NFL stands for? It's not, not for long. <laughs> um, but it's like, this is the way you're doing it. But in, you have to understand in pro tennis, coming back to this first question, tying into this one, is who's the boss? Who's driving the bus? And typically what happens is the tail's wagging the dog. And then the, in, in tennis, the, the, coach doesn't, the coach isn't the boss, you know? No, there's like say in pro sports, there's a marquee players, and yeah, um, many times the coach is fired before the marquee player is. Yeah, but um, with um, you have to be consumed by the ch- train, the the change. You got to be all in. It's got to make sense. Excuse me. It's going to be the scenario where initially looks better, feels worse, and. Um, you know, the kid looks at you and they nod. It, okay, it makes sense. But when, when it comes down to most players, you can go to most, it's, again, it sounds doom and gloom, but it, what would parents vote on this? They've, they've gone from one place to the next. Um, is there continuity? Is there continuity from court to court? Granted, there's different styles, different personalities, different teaching styles, but is there continuity and, you know, then you'd think, okay, no, I'd say people, the vote would be, no, there's not continuity. It comes down to our players talent, you know, do players, um, are players corrected from the, from the get-go when they're younger? Go, well, I came over that back end. Mm-hmm. You can't come over anything. Mm-hmm. But that, so you, when you hear that, you go, wait a minute. Yeah. We have to change the language. Yeah. You're not coming over it. Yeah. You know, racket head awareness. Um, but, um, so, you know, who's worked with them and. Um, actually the change is not that difficult if the person is like, okay, I'm listening. Yeah. I'm listening. Yeah. And I think there's so much of, uh, if there's um, interference, you know, if you have doubts or any kind of interference going on in your head, you're not going to make the change. Yeah. I mean, at least not as fast. No. So then it comes down to, can you get a kid to slow down and go, no, this is what we're working on. Yeah. And it's instruction, destruction. Okay, I showed you how to do it. Now let's go play. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. If you're going to truly make a change, you know, that's that's unfortunate. Even at the grassroots level, tennis should not be year-round. There shouldn't be 12 months of tournaments. But, you know, tennis, even at the highest level, I mean, who's in charge of junior tennis? I mean, um, yeah. with, um, I think instead of listening to the score, it's in the details, Um when it comes down to you're trying to grow myelin and the thing is, is that, well, you've got some bad myelin. It's a, it's a computer software package. You got to deprogram it. It's not rocket science to get the racket face lower. It's like, this is how it needs to go. Mm-hmm. And then let's get in front of a mirror. Yeah. Let's toss you some balls. And um, I think that's another thing, just basic as far as tips to get the racket face closed. You got to see it. So either film or look in front of a mirror as you practice so that you can get some feedback. 
You know what I'm saying, Smith? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what are we on to here? That's some pretty good uh, German. Yeah. Number three. We answered this question the other day through, uh, through text, but the same person asked if we would address it on the podcast. So can you explain the composite grip? And this really was, had to do with the, the forehand volley. Well, just think of the word composite. I mean, first of all, just what, how do you define that word? There used to be composite rackets. It's made of two materials. Yeah. A composite grip is made of two grips. Yeah. Or it's an in-between grip. It's Jose Garris. It's the forehand volley is almost a continental grip. The Aussies used to call it an Australian grip. Um, so many pros from years ago when the grass was bad, they played continental. Mm-hmm. And I uh, appreciate the point that you've made is that so many players today are more composite on the forehand and they do the same thing. They don't they don't have a strong enough grip on the backhand side. Yeah. They're going to adjust the wrist more or just really swing down more on the backhand side. Flat on the forehand side, swing down more on the backhand. Many pros, they use a composite grip and they're telling people they use the continental grip. Yeah. Pros, typically they don't do what they say, say what they do. Uh, it's an inexact science. You know, just think about palmistry, you know, the gypsies, uh, you know, the fortune tellers are going to read your palm, hand, the, the size of the hand, the size of the palm, the width, the length of the fingers. Then it comes down to personal preference. Um, there's advantages and disadvantages to every grip. The, the continental grip um, is not going to be very good for high balls. You, know, so, you, have, you have to, you have yeah. to be stronger. You know, if a young kid is taught a tr- strong continental grip. Especially on the forehand side. Yeah, definitely. Um, the record face, on it, it's open 45 degrees, and it's facing the opposite court. So then you have to contort your wrist, raise your elbow, which is a good thing. Yeah. You're forced you're, to raise your you elbow. You really do it. <laughs> um, but the advantages and disadvantages to every every grip. Um, the, um, you know, years ago with, you know, grass courts and wooden rackets and people by the second week of the grass court tournaments wearing spikes. They didn't want to let the ball bounce. Um, some of our students, some of our trainees will call a composite grip 2.5. Um, so say for example, um, when you or, hit a four, even 1.5 on the backhand side, but yeah, for the yeah. forehand 2.5. When you um, hit a forehand, you know, I was, I guess reprimanded is the right word. So someone reprimanded me online for, you know, we're just trying to share information is, you know, I call this an extreme Eastern grip and it's your base knuckle for the forehand is still on the third panel, yeah. but it's on the bottom of the third panel. So that's going to slightly close the racket face. Yeah. And that's a, that's an advantage. The racket's closed. So you let the racket free fall with gravity. So you, when you go forward, you're teaching a little kid, you know, we'll, we'll even say volley with a flat grip. When, you, when you're older, you can volley with a spin grip. It's just slight. And it's, mm-hmm. you're just turning your hand a fraction, a fraction, a fraction. Yeah. You're not going all the way to continental. Yeah. It, it's just not right for people to say, all the pros use continental grip. Yeah. <laughs> they don't. No. And, um, but that's the norm. With um, a combination of two grips, there's two reference points. Where do you put your base knuckle? Where do you put your heel pad? And um, you don't want to be on three at a real high level, and you don't want to be on two at a real high level. Now, 
when it comes down to ATP pros, I can't say WTA, but ATP pros, my experience is they're talking about fantasy football or they're talking about the ATP pension. Mm. They're not like Jack Sock. I mean, he's in so many RPMs on his forehand volley. Well, do the math is that if you've got a continental grip, a direct faces at 45 degree angle, I mean, um, you know, Pete Sampras, um, I've heard both Courier and V-Liner comment, well, they're not sure if anyone will ever volley that way again. Well, okay, guys, I agree. That makes sense. I mean, they're okay. Maybe never be another Pete on, on volleys, but granted he was, you know, having his serve to help him with that. Yeah. But, you know, when it came down to it, um, he did not have an open racket face yeah. on the forehand volley. There's more, there were more negatives to a continental grip on the forehand side than there is to a continental on the backhand side. Yeah. But when people hear that, you know, I um, tell the story where uh, somebody who's using our curriculum now, training players and having success, we have a short clip that says, it's in the course, Tennis Intelligence Applied. Now, one, I, I just say, once you hear this, you, there's some of you that may just quit the course. Yeah. And he quit the course. Yeah. You know, oh, this guy doesn't teach continental volleys. He doesn't know what he's doing. And, um, you know, it's like Vic Braden, you know, he, when he was on TV teaching masses, he would say the backhand is grip on one, serve is grip on two, forehand is grip on three. Well, when Vic taught the backhand, he taught the backhand on the right side of one. But then there's other things with grips and every swing. Um, yeah, you have to look, you know, so, you know what are they doing with their enti- entire unit turn, the wrist position, the elbow position, but. Yeah, I mean, with a composite grip, I mean, you could say, yeah, Two, two grips mixed together and you know the time that I've spent traveling and, and being around the tour and then filming the pros for so many years with Vic it's composite grips on the forehand side but and it can vary you know where the knuckle is sometimes the, the knuckle will be more towards the top of three and then the heel pad will shift down you know for a bat for a backhand volley you know some players choke up on the racket more some let the the fatty part of the palm hang off more and it changes things so like you said, there's no perfect grip, just the, the grip with the least amount of adjustment. But generally speaking, we try to get people the, to be, you know, you could say 2.5, but really to try to be on the left side of three with the heel pad and the base knuckle. Just if you were to say, okay, here's, I'm going to just show you this as a composite grip. And then people will adjust and adapt according to their hand and whatnot. Yeah. Um, no, it's like serving with a continental grip. One of the best tennis teachers ever, Welby Van Horn, he allowed people to serve with a forehand grip, even towards bottom of three. Because you just had a ball, you set the racket on the court, so you just pick it up. Mm-hmm. And he would put, had to tell the kids, put it in the tray position. And then he would just say, toss, tap, finish. He had the kid finish on balance. So he taught, you know, the relaxation. He taught stance. He taught rhythm. That was his method was balance. So they did, they were doing everything except for, then he would call it a championship grip. And um, then he'd had to, to teach people how to hit with a throwing motion. Yeah. Uh, but instead of having people be all over the map. Uh, but so that is something where uh, with young kids, you don't want to teach young kids to volley with a continental grip. It's just so tough. They're not strong enough. Not strong enough. And, you know, it's like John McEnroe, and I mean, he was a genius. And he had a continental grip. He did a okay, 
I mean, he won, what, he won an ATP doubles title with Bjorkman at 50. Yeah, but the but, way he volleyed wasn't a big downward cut. Well, what he would do, because he had a continental grip, he would actually jump. He just, you know, is he going to explain that? Elbow gonna, raised. Right, and that he knew, because when you have a continental grip, you have to, you can't have your contact point be way out in front. So he would... That's me late. Yeah, and then on the backhand side, I mean, he would even take the racket and go like this, because... He was a genius. He knew um, his instincts were subconsciously. Is he going to intellectualize and explain how he volleyed? Um, but he was getting the racket face vertical to hit. Yeah. And a continental grip opens the racket face too much. And then the eastern grip, you don't have any pitch to the racket face, so it's very, very difficult to play on low balls. Yeah. You know, you think about, say, like a, say a Jim Courier, I mean, you know, that would have helped him out as a young kid on the forehand volley. I mean, he's close to winning Wimbledon, but you know, um, you know, he he had problems with the backhand, the left hand on his two-handed backhand. He had problems with the volley on the forehand side. The grip determines the angle of the racket face. But that comes back to the person's first question: Is some of the top five in the world? Is that um, going back to someone like a Jenny Brady? Is that when she was ten? So then you do have to, I don't like the word compromise, but you do have to work within a player's game. It really shouldn't happen in college tennis. Um, I mentioned Craig Tiley. He did very well. You know, he, this thing, this great base that we assembled, that's what he took to Illinois. And when it comes down to, um, we used to do this before the NCAA rule, NCAA ruling changed, is we ran a program called um, College Prep. And we had all sorts of players, you know, small program, but, you know, for several years. So you do it for 10 years and it's 10 kids a year. I mean, so we had several players. Um, where Mike Costa, uh, who's now a famous comedian, you know, he was training with us. He played at Illinois and I remember him telling me that this one young kid from Bermuda, he goes, he will never play college tennis. I said, Costa, I'm going to get him to beat you. <laughs> and, you know, he did, the kid went on and played college tennis. But I remember Tylee saying, every kid should be in a college prep program. I mean, mm. with uh, I mean, last year, it wasn't last year because of the pandemic, but um, the men's final two years ago, NCAA men's final, there was no forcing. There was, there was nobody coming to the net. Yeah, I mean, two great athletes, banging the ball and it's like, well, okay, but it's no different with technique than it is with tactics. Um, you know, a kid uh, plays one, one up, one back doubles to be on the varsity as a freshman. What are they going to do when they're a sophomore? They're going to do what they did when they were freshmen. Yeah. All right. Next question. What is the highest level you guys were able to compete at? So yeah. I was just a little better than Federer. <laughs> When he was six, uh, maybe five. <laughs> no, um, to me, these kind of questions, I mean, it's, it's fine to answer, but it kind of comes down to the credibility thing. It's like someone listening and they're going like, Oh, you know, can you hit, can you play at you know, what level did you play at? There's some college coaches that I've trained to teach tennis. And if I was in the room, they would not be selling themselves as a player. <laughs> but if I'm not in the room, I know they're just telling stories about, well, I, I'll tell your kid how to see the court and, you know, I will do this and I will do that. And, and, um, you know, granted, if you're going to fly an airplane, you want to take a lesson from someone who's flown an airplane. Um, it's Welby Van Horn. 
he was great as a player and great as a teacher. And he said, it's a bonus if you played. Yeah. I think what Braden said, if you expect yourself to, if you expect your students to play, you should be able to play. Yeah. Um, I do think that uh, for a lot of men, the macho maligo, the older they get, the better they were. Um, I mean, I could just tell a story. I won't do it now. It'd be too long, but we could do that another time. Um, I um, tell people, well, you know, probably the best win I ever had was beat a player who was 23 in the world uh, several times. Of course, it was just in practice. And uh, the player was from Korea, and she was tough. <laughs> so um, with, uh, no, I think Jan Tyriak, um, for me, Tyriak, I'm the best tennis player in the world who's not a tennis player. I, I'm not a tennis player, but, and I really, um, I could go through it, but uh, in detail, it's, I think it's a fun story. And I think um, young coaches, especially, um, I didn't learn tennis through osmosis. You know, I was 16, my uh, father, mother, okay, I was going off to a boarding school. The next thing you know, as I'm washing dishes at a camp in the Adirondacks, and I stayed in the cabin, had some tennis courts. There's banging balls against the wall. And um, I'm a product of the tennis boom with senioritis. So I had senioritis and I'm at a prep school. They reinstated a, a rule you had to play a spring sport. I used to run cross country to get into shape. So then it's like, okay, Smith, you, why you run the two mile? Because the, they were allowing the hockey players to do this off season training. And we weren't chaperone supervised and we were just playing street hockey in the gym every day. So they took our rowdy group and said, now you have to feed into sports. And uh, so I, I played tennis. Then I went to the SUNY school and, and I went as a lark, I went out for the tennis team and they kept me on the tennis team. And then the ice was put in. So, but it, you know, so I, I'm at this small prep school. I, I thought I could play tennis because yeah, I made the varsity. I worked my way up the ladder and then I go home and, um, so I live in a small town and I, I beat the high school league champion. So ah, I must be a player. Um, but no, when it comes down to um, level play, um, I know young coaches are asked that all the time. And it's, you know, for yourself, I mean, if you want to make comments, and I could go on and on. We talked about Jim Lair, uh, knocked some balls around with Jim Lair. I was coached by Vic Braden. Mm -hmm with, because I was at one point the best player on the staff during the school year. Summer, uh, remember um, Andis Luters, Andy Luters, um, he was a very good tennis player. One time he came to Tyler, Texas, there was a pro tournament, he won it. Um, he was taught by Braden when he was a kid. He had played big time college tennis, he's a pilot now. I got to be like 400 in the world, mm -hmm. um, but, um, and I think that the uh, only reason I was the best player on the staff is I was, wasn't commuting. I was living at the Vic Braden Tennis College in my van. Like Ted Schroeder's son was on the staff. He was an All-American in two different sports, golf and basketball in college. And, but I was just hitting balls every day. And, and um, you know, Vic would work with some pros. I would be, be the one who'd hit with the pros. He'd get, it was like, Steve, you're backhand volley. <laughs> Steve, you're serve. You're rubbing your chest against the... Um, cement but um no i and I, I come from an era where you played all these different sports and 
But you play, I mean, you played open level tennis in Florida, right? I mean. Oh, no. I mean, the bio. I mean, I remember, you know, okay, I was ranked uh, 19 in Florida. That's big time. And you know, I used to tell people uh, on any given day at the Miami International Airport, there was 20 people who could beat me. <laughs> so but I was told that you have to learn how to play. And you know, I really enjoyed that. But, you know, I didn't get into the, the, the playing side of it where, okay, the fantasy is I'm going to be a pro player. Yeah. I mean, I started playing when I was 19. Also, too, I came from ice hockey. And my background in hockey were um, – my age, the Canadians, even the Canadian kids who came to play college hockey in America, they weren't given given a look. Then the 1980 Olympics. So an American kid is like, okay, I hope I can make the Olympic team. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, and I think hockey also too is that uh, characters taught much better in hockey than it is in tennis. People in tennis don't have a BS detector. I have many students that have gotten trouble, big time trouble, for embellishing their, yeah. their um, playing background. Playing background. Well, it's funny. I joke around about that with a friend of mine, you know, as well, Jill Drucker, where, you know, because people can exaggerate their playing background where, you know, okay, I, I played pro tennis. You know, I played in the main draw of two futures tournaments, doubles, you know? So it's like, I could, I could say, yeah, Hey, I, I played pro I played on the tour is what we joke around about. But it's like, okay, did you really play on the tour? Were you, you were traveling the world, playing in the top hundred? Um, and it's like, no, you know. Or did you play qualities of futures, and you know, you lost O and O, or you lost, you know, whatever. It's like, come on. But you know, some everything's out there online. But you know, I played. You know, I had a later start as well. I was eleven years old or so, ten, eleven, and uh, you know, was section ranked top twenty in Southern Cal, uh, Intermountain top. 10, seven, something like that. I think I finished my last year. Nashville rank, got a scholarship, played division one, big time college tennis, Weber state university. <laughs> um, you know, but really I, tennis wise, I just love the game. I love to compete. I went on a mission for my church, you know, that after, after Weber state. Um, so I left two years off, came back and, and really got back into teaching and still competed, you know, open tournaments. And then, and then, tinkered around with a few futures because Luke Wickham, who you did some work with, but he was um, running a futures tournament in Kissimmee right here down the road. And uh, the guy that I was working with, my friend Tyler Weeks at the time, you know, we came over to help out Vic with some clinics and Luke was like, well, I'll give you a wild card. You can play in qualities of the doubles. And so we won that back to back two years in a row. We won the qualifying for double, so we played the main draw of futures. You know, Raven Clausen's in there with us, and I was at that tournament. Yeah, so you know, we had some fun. We got we got murdered. I mean, we didn't do that well, but you know, I I, I would say I, I'm not an excellent player, but I played at a respectable level. You know, good enough to be able to to give some some pros a, a workout. You know, and a warm up, and and I um, I, I lived in a van yeah. for uh, for two years. First year down was, by the river. First playing uh, Matt Foley, motivational speaker. <laughs> uh, the first year I was playing tournaments, but then the second year I traveled to all these different places to just observe the training yeah. all over the country. Um, I can remember uh, I used to practice with uh, anybody and everybody. I was a perennial tennis bum at Boca Raton, Florida, you know, for really five years. Mm. And um, 
a gentleman named Swanson. His daughter was a very good player, and he used to ask me to hit with his daughter. And I'd hit with anybody and everybody all day. And I remember him talking to him, and he goes, oh, so you, you know, So I was in my early 20s, and he said, so you're, you're really like a good 14-year-old. And it's really true. You think about Mylan, and with... Um, but I think really to just put things in perspective. Um, but no, I think when people say ready play, but actually for me, and I, you know, with, with Vic, as I stopped playing tennis is, um, so, so competitive. And I remember being on the Tyler junior college campus and it's like, well, and that's just the way I was wired. Okay. I got to practice four hours a day minimum. And then I said, wait a minute, you know, because our, our tennis teaching students were like second class citizens that the, the, the tennis team and it, and I mean, there was really good tennis players. It, it, it still are at the junior college level, but not like it was back in the heyday. And one time in Florida, there was 32 men's teams. Now there's zero, yeah. but, um, but no, I was so competitive and it comes down to, you know, a Bradenism is you have to get to the point where you're wrapped up in your, your own game. Not, not in, excuse me, you're wrapped up in your student's game, yeah, not your own game. And, um, you know, but it's, the system in, in the U.S. is not like Europe where you can play club tennis. And, um, yeah, you know, like Michael Mahoney, who's, you know, been with Tennis Corporation of America for a long time. I just met him one time and, you know, he's a briefcase specialist for tennis. And but remember, he said he has to play a set a day. But like, once you stop playing, um, but I, I remember, um, you know, being in, in my twenties and um, early thirties, even though I say I stopped playing that um, with, uh, you know, you kids, you know, you beat, beat them first and they'll listen to you. Yeah, exactly. Um, with, uh, no, I can remember, you know, I had the summers off because I was running this college program and it's like, well, okay, I haven't played on grass and just went over to England, played on grass. I mean, um, no, I still love playing. I mean, I, you know, I lived in Germany, obviously the last four years I played on a club team every year, played a few tournaments. Um, you know, you don't get to practice all the time, but if you can play a little bit and continue to compete, like you said, it's important just to kind of stay in it and have some of those experiences. And that's what I'd like. Yeah. You gotta be able, you gotta be, you gotta live it. You know, I, I think for example, they're not asking Bill Belichick, how far can you punt? Yeah. Can you still throw the ball bill? Yeah. And, um, but that, that's the, I would say the number one sales pitch, um, the, um, you know, there's, uh, Again, I think that the celebrity coaches, you know, I don't want to underplay what they're doing, but I do think that many times people think, okay, they're working with their forehands and backhands, but it's, it's more the the subtleties and nuances of this, that, and the everything, everything. Just like psych- I'd say, more on the psychological side. Yeah. All right. So you were a hack. I played pro tennis. We got that one done. With uh, <laughs> okay, I, I have a few more notes on that question. Uh, <laughs> with uh, pressure matches, with. Uh, you know, I think people should be asked, you know, what did you say about Vic and the ball boys? Oh, so yeah, when I did play those tournaments, he was like, really? You mean with the balls and the ball, the umpires and everything? <laughs> it's like, yep. I, it, it, for me, I can remember 
being a young young kid, okay, I'm going to go down this journey and make myself a, a tennis teacher, tennis coach, um, find the right people to help me out. I can remember hitting the backboard and this older man, there's so many retirees in Florida, he came over and asked me if I'd be a fourth. So I said, yeah, I'll play, I'll be a fourth. Hmm. And then I, by the time I walked, you know, grabbed my bag and walked to the court they run, uh, uh, another person showed up and they said, ah, we don't need you. <laughs> but... Uh, you know, I just said, oh boy, that wasn't very nice. Hmm. But I can remember that gentleman, um, you know, I became friends with him and um, practiced the same place. You know, so he's in his, he's 70 and I'm 20. And, you know, but I can remember playing in the Boca Raton City Championships. Uh, but it was the first time there was a chair and a microphone and lines people. And you know, I, I think, you know, people need to experience that. Um, you know, some kids, the, the sooner the better, and they've been fortunate that way. With, um, I can remember playing an exhibition about 500 people against Roger Crawford, who played college tennis mm-hmm. at LMN School in California. Uh, Marymount. Um, oh, yeah, Loyola Marymount. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah LMU. So yeah. Um, disabled in all four limbs and... Yeah. So, so, you know, I started to play and, it, and it's like he was being very competitive. Um, so squeak that out. Um, I can remember Jeannie Nation. So she was taught by Braden and then by Landstorp. So she came. She did a lot of things with the WTA as an administrator. So this is where all very young and she comes to work at Vicks. And uh, I was the one who's hitting balls all the time. It only worked like four hours a day. I think it was the easiest guy in the world to work for. Let's go hit balls. And um, I digress. I could tell stories about stories. So she had won the, they didn't call it the NCAAs, but she was a single champion for women's college tennis. And she came in and uh, she was very easy going. And the, the, the boys were giving me a hard time. And they all told me that she was going to beat me. So, But I, I had a win over the uh, NCAA champion too. So... I just needed to get a sex change like Renee Richards. You know, I was, uh, maybe I could have been top 50 on the WTA tour. Maybe. Um, here's a question that's asked to you. Which pro player does Steve wish he could coach from the age of 12 to 18? Andy Fitzell. No doubt. <laughs> Got some athletic ability. Andy Fitzell. Um, with physical specimen, really. You know, I think of, uh, if I had to answer quickly, Thomas Burdich, uh, Moresmo. Burdich. Amelia, is it Amelia Moresmo? Amelie. Amelie Moresmo. Yeah. With, uh, I have a little confidence as a coach. Uh, I'm pretty sure uh, I, I would put the, you know, the wager to it that I uh, could have got him to go. I mean, he's right there. The guy, if you've ever seen him, I'm sure you have. He's really bigger than the door. He's, yeah. a, he's a statue. And he was top 10, like the seventh or 17 year old. But, you know, he has slight regress palm up on his serve and his overhead. Yeah. He needed to be told some things about directionals. In a lot of ways, he looked like he was just so well taught. I mean, he was, but there was just some things where um, I think that could have been pointed out to him. Moresmo finally won, but you know, th- those are some names that come to me. I think, like, say, uh, Martin Hingis, you go stroke by stroke, is, you know, John Lofty Diaga, who trained with us a little bit when he was a kid, he he played mix with her for three years. Mm-hmm. We're telling Diaga, well, you know, why didn't you teach that your partner how to serve? Mm-hmm. And you know, um, you get to a certain point, you know, that you don't really say things. Um, for me, 
I've been coaching tennis for so long, but I probably coached less than a dozen kids who can stuff a basketball. So, I, I mean, I've, you know, I think that's a good way to say I've been a developmental player. Um, yeah, I do think that... Developmental coach, you mean? Developmental coach, yeah. yes. Yeah, I've got that. Now I'm thinking about being a player. I might, I, player might, I might make a <laughs> comeback. I might make a comeback. <laughs> with, uh, I say this all the time. I, I meet parents that I'd rather coach the parents of today and I, you know, I think you know, I'm, I'm a generation older than the parents of today, but um, I think Bobby Knight says that quite well is the, the parents of yester generation and yesteryear, yesteryear going back um, with, uh, but you know, it's an interesting question. I mean, I could go on and on. I mean, say this player, that player, but yeah. some, some people that are very close that just needed some help and say, like, are they really getting, you know, are they getting the secret sauce? I, there is no secret sauce, but are they just being told just a few gems that will really help them out? How about you? Who would you want I to coach? Think, you know, some great athlete like uh, Gail Murphy. I think he would have. Oh, been I mean, one, or like he's Dimitrov. so fun to watch. I mean, I I've been in so many matches with him. In fact, uh, when I was over in France with my son, there was another. Uh, young man who started with the French Tennis Federation, but he just had such poor technique. And I mean, he was really same body type, just a statue, big, big athletic guy. And he, yeah. he ended up having to stop. But, you know, with not taking anything away from it, but could you imagine if he was taught? I mean, people might laugh at us, but, you know, we've got to say, uh, you know, say, oh, okay, these 13, 14 year old boys would be working with if, um, Monfils had that type of training. Yeah. Um, and, you know, watch out world. Yeah. Yeah, said Moresmo, I mean, uh, you know, back in the day, it was always kind of like, oh, man, you know, really help, I could help Sharapova out just a little bit, you know, with their serve or, you know, I just think of strokes for oh, sure. players where you just go, well, geez, if that player could have just gotten a little information here or there. Sharapova, even though she won, I mean, so many grand slams, you know, she won uh, the French twice. When it comes down to, like, say, Rajiv Ram, great player. He did so well um, at the Australian. You got to two finals. He won one, he won the mix, and lost in the men's. Yeah. Um, Sharapova is similar to. There's a guy who played one semester of college tennis. Yeah. So he, um, when it comes down to uh, Sharapova, tried to emulate Sampras to serve with not as much success. Yeah. Um, I, my, I think of Sharapova is so self-critical where she won. She said it on, on clay, I move like a fat cow on ice. You know, so, I mean, you know, is it very interesting to listen to players? But no, I do think that um, from the get-go, if she was taught to go forward more, um, big swing on the forehand. I don't like this. Well, she had a WTA forehand. Is a forehand's a forehand, and you know, but yeah, a racket face on both sides was a little bit open. But great, great player. Um, but you know, the thing about her is that you know it comes back to the first question: is that um, you know, in secrecy, really. It was, I mean, I coached one of her friends, uh, Liberty Secchi. They, they were buddies growing up at Balteri's. She, they both had been there five years. Liberty and her father didn't know that um, they kept it a secret that she was going out to work with Landsdorf mm -hmm. once a month, and. Um. Yeah. So, Sharapova. There's so many. Um, 
Okay. You know, it says right here to have coached them from the age of 12 to 18. Mm-hmm. It was a, I'd say I would have liked to turn that back because, you know, if you're working with someone, yeah. when you start working with somebody at 12, if, they've already, 12. if they've already been playing six years, yeah. um, with, um, and it's not to beat anybody up, but um, in the U.S. right now, tennis has gone back to being more of a minor sport. You know, so you always hear that, well, the athletes are playing the, the sports that are not on cable TV, but, you know, the CBS, the NBC sports, yeah. ABC, basketball, football, baseball. Here's a question for you. Thoughts on using the wrist to get ragged head speed, spin, and directional control on the forehand ground stroke? Well, here's a Bradenism. We're at war with the wrist. <laughs> We're at war with the, the wrist. One of the best, yeah. And um, I made a video today for a young boy, and I mean, I just show him his forehand slow motion. We, we made a technical tape for him, and then we put him through two different types of skills tests, and he's playing in slow motion, and it's really... You know, the racket's here, and really? Yeah. I mean... For me, it's just, you know, Vicky used to always say, well, the first of all, the wrist don't have... There's no separate set of wrist muscles. You would bring that point up a lot. Um, but if you just really could go, okay, here's the dimensions of the court, you know, 19.1 degrees. If, you just, if you're a little off, it's going wide. If you're a little over this way, it's going in the net. If you're a little open this way, it's going along. So to... to try to really force that movement you know the wrist will move passively it's like hey the, the from the you know forces involved the forearm going fast equal and opposite reaction the wrist will lay back and then it comes forward but to really try to forcefully manipulate the wrist even for injury prevention yeah you know years advisable. years ago you hear the term layback and say well just have to keep that layback but i'll just bring your elbow up yeah and um you want to have a loose grip, a soft hand, but a fixed wrist position. And then if you watch the players at the hit, yeah, the wrist is fixed. Yeah. And it, it, I mean, so that's just, let's go with the facts. What's happening at the moment of truth? What's, what's, what's going on with the racket? Yeah. So you talk, you know, the fancy words like radial and ulnar deviation and some of those things, you know, there's some of that going on, but to really forcibly try to do it. Yeah. No, if you go really fast, the racket's going to come back into the left, but don't force it. You know, with the, with the wrist action going this way, but you just, you don't want to have people, you, you, young kids playing, they think that they can hit a passing shot by by making this movement rolling and coming over it because when they come up, they don't hit the geometric center. They hit, yeah. because they're coming up, they hit to the bottom, yeah. the geometric center, then the racket twist. Racket twist, and then, but the ball's already gone. Yeah. Looks like it to people. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, it, yeah. This is interesting. One thing, Stanley Pleganoff, um, you know, he came before, uh, say, getting aerial. So he was like the name you heard as a pioneer in the field of biomechanics. So he was told by tennis experts to hit a forehand, you got to come over the ball. So he, then he came up and go, well, this is the best way you need. If you want the racket, you know, he's just listening to tennis experts. If you want the racket to go like this. Yeah. So then, then he, promoted a continental grip and there's like no no wait a minute let's look at the film you know where where out of the strings need to be at the impact point yeah so it it, it took people a while to uh you know the the tennis experts and the and the, the biomechanists to to connect um, i still think in tennis research and practice are so far removed mm-hmm. 
Um, the coming back to the level of play, you know, somebody's wearing a white jacket, you know, they're in a research lab, you know, they're studying tennis, you know, are the people that are playing tennis respecting the information that they're putting together? It's kind of like I tell people a lot, you know, I always use Federer as an example because he's examined the most, but it's like, you know, do you really think Roger was taught to flip it and lag and snap and roll it and turn the doorknob? And you know what I mean? Windshield wiper. It's like, you know, told all that, you know, so things, things evolve and the forces involved at the highest level, you know, the way those guys are built, those girls are built and the speed that they're developing through that, through the forces, you know, things happen, but it's for these young kids that go out and try to emulate these movements. No, I think also too, is there's insecurities involved where it comes down to, um, you know, there's so much salesmanship involved in tennis. Say, well, I've I got some secret sauce. No, you don't. Well, this is what you know. <laughs> this is what I saw on YouTube, and it's just yeah. parents are writing checks for it. I call it dumb and dumber. The lesson's dumb, and the per- the parent writing the check for it's dumber. Give me three secrets. The um, Malcolm Gladwell. Um, you know, Vic Braid spent time with Malcolm, and Malcolm was just shocked that uh, mm. the top players could not explain. How they hit the ball. Yeah. Um, they don't really have to, but but the thing is too is they um, they're trying to explain what they don't remember. They don't remember learning yeah. how to hit a ball when they were younger. Well, his point too was that the pros were saying things to him, and none of them were true. You know, so he's going back and he's going, you know, none of what they said is what's happening. Really yeah, that's Arthur Ashe and Sam Smith spent some time with Vic. They made a video. Yeah. And, you know, they're both obviously so uh, successful as players and, and champions. And they were like, I didn't know that. Yeah. They were very humble. I didn't know that. And they were very open because if you're just looking at the film. Yeah. Um, with uh, Vic, you should always say, and I've mentioned this before, that Arthur went out and told the people, oh, sorry, you know, I didn't. I don't do what I said I did. And he goes, that's why his name's on a stadium. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next question. The purpose of the trigger finger, so the index finger. Uh, my, my, my comment on that was really first and foremost to not use a, a hammer or fistic grip, a motorcycle grip, you know, that you're going to spread the knuckles on the grip so that your heel pad and Base and next knuckle are spread out a little bit more, so you're going to spread that trigger finger, so that you're not you're not riding the Harley. Although I wish I could ride a Harley, my lovely wife is not too thrilled about that thought of me having a motorcycle again. I think with the you want you need to spread your fingers out. I mean, how would you yeah. catch a ball? Yeah, I mean, how are you going to play a piano? How are you going to palm a basketball with? Um, the, the the pressure points with say the the thumb the nar the the index finger as far as how you can um, say for example if someone has a, a composite grip or extreme eastern grip whatever grip is where do they apply pressure points and does that affect the angle of the racket head just where they apply a little bit of pressure so but I say really for more control. Um, I was blown away by this. Uh, one of my students said, you know, sent me, said, here's a, here's an audio tape, of Welby Van Horn. Mm-hmm. And I was, so I listened to it and 
he was only asked one question. That was it. And he said, if there was one tennis tip that you could share with people, what would it be? And he said, put a rubber band on the butt cap. Mm-hmm. So they're choking up like on a baseball bat because mm-hmm. you know, the, 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 the smaller the racket, the more control they have. Yeah. And, you know, certainly when kids are peewees or toddlers, you can, they used to take an old wooden racket and cut it off. But have a kid use a full-size racket, but they're choking up on the full-size racket. And, you know, then when it comes to, it came down to, uh, you know, by choking up on the racket, if they went like this on their forehand, the racket would hit their, so they, hit their forearm. For the listeners, he's folding his wrist forward. Yeah, if so you fold it forward, you're going to hit the same, same thing when someone is like the the seal at SeaWorld waving to you like this. You know, some people serve that way. <laughs> yeah. But if you're choking up on the racket and you go like this, it just, it's just say like wrong, wrong, yeah, wrong, wrong. Yeah. You know, it's like, Instant feedback. it's like Braden used to ask people, he used to have a form. He did it for the year. So people would come into his tennis school and had a survey. He wanted to know if people would, would not be harmful, would not be unhealthy, but would you take electric shock to be better? Yeah. And uh, more than 50% of people said, yeah, yes. <laughs> wire me up, shock me a little bit. Yeah. With, um, Give me some feedback. Now I, I would just suggest video. Um, okay. The uh, number eight here, we've got what's the best way for a coach to structure a private lesson? Well, I think what type of private lesson is it? Is it a first time private? Is it a standing private? Is it like an every Tuesday private? Yeah. I can remember, uh, yeah, I, I do know how to, uh, you know, make money. I mean, there's some companies that said, okay, Steve, we know that you don't want to do it that way. You're too much of a purist, but how, how, how do you really make money? And, you know, I said, well, okay. I said, I'll tell you what, I'll write a smorgasbord of private lessons for you. There's just so many different types of privates that you can give. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, just say, even like with private lessons, um, you know, do you play the entire set? Do you meet with them afterwards? Do you play one point and comment? Um, with, here's a story of private lessons. Gene Austin, late Gene Austin, five kids. They're all great tennis players. So there's Tracy and Pam, there's the three boys. I'm not sure which, I'm going to guess it was John Austin. But um, anyway, so Jean goes to the lesson and she's sitting there like, okay, I got to understand what he's teaching my son. And Lansrop didn't didn't say one word the entire lesson. Mm-hmm. And then she said that politely afterwards, she said, well, Robert, you didn't say anything to him. He goes, yeah, that was the lesson. He goes, he's not listening to me, so I didn't say anything. And then Lanzarov goes, it's one of the best lessons I ever gave. Yeah. And then, you know, she goes, I understand. She paid for the lesson. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I would, would think the message was when she went home with her son, you're going to start listening to this guy. Yeah. Um, the three E's of a lesson, I think you have to hide education many times. Um, I hate to say that, but the camouflage education. Mm-hmm. The three E's, uh, enjoyment or entertainment, enjoyment, exercise, and education. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's the problem solution you have to assess first. Uh, you have to have diagnostic skills. What's the flaw? What's the cause? What's the cure? Yeah. So there's application and, and, and helping. That's really your arsenal of ideas is how do you get it done? I think what I would recommend is what I've done is you have to imitate first, innovate second. You know, go with the best and forget the rest. Um, giving kids homework. I say kids, I mean, 
adult players the same. Um, you need to, um, there's really, it shouldn't be that way. Um, you know, you're teaching adults and teaching children in Japan, for example, the, the adults come, they jog laps around the court and they stretch. I spent some time in Japan. So I was back in the States and I was doing this adult clinic and I said, all right, just jog a few laps. And they all looked at me in America, adult tennis clinics. They don't jump laps. Mm -hmm. They don't jog laps. Um, I did a lot of work with the USPTA and the PTR over the years, um, you know, preparing people for the test, you know, everything from the greeting, how do you greet the player? And then how do you, you know, thank the player? Bill Tim used to be the voice of the USPTA, um, very organized, prolific speaker. And, you know, he had a system at one point where you took a lesson from him, the head coach, and then you follow up lessons with the assistant. So he had, a, you know, like a three by five car is pretty simple. Said this is what they're working on. Mm. Um, so, you know, you don't want to have the private lesson where the kid comes back and you could, it's more, pretty much you just push the tape recorder and just play the same thing all over again. Yeah. You know, people ask about themes. You know, I think that's more for tennis camps. Okay, what's the theme of the day? I mean, I, okay, here's a clinic and, you know, the theme of the day. And, um, you know, you know that that's where um, Vic, who was a psychologist, there were so many positives about, you know, Tim Galloway when he brought to tennis and Jim Lair who brought to tennis. But I think many times a private tennis lesson, you're on the court and it's like, you have to teach people to improve their skills. Yeah. And it, it just comes down to teachings, information transfer, and you need a feedback system. And um, it's not what the teacher knows, it's what the student learns. Yeah. And, um, you know, we have homework and we, we tell people we don't want young junior players, we don't want you to be on social media, but if you're putting up an Instagram um, post that uh, takes you two minutes to watch it, watch it. You know, we put something into six minutes to read on Facebook. Yeah. And we tell people if they're in our program, they're not doing that, they're part-time. And um, I do think many times what happens is kids get too many lessons, they get lessened out. I feel like many times when I'm teaching someone, they're just in a high chair and they're just being spoon-fed. Um, you know, it comes down to, uh, and again, it's not to pick on parents by any means. It's not, it's not parents, it's society. How many tennis kids in the U S would know what you mean? You say, okay, brown bag it, you know, don't not, not process uh, power bars, but you know, like tomorrow at 10 30, we should have some kids just bring some wheat bread, have, have some peanut butter, a couple pieces of fruit. Brown you, bag it. you got a 30, 30 minute bat. We have a 30 minute workout for three hours. We're going to talk to you. About different parts of the game, and you, you know, eat the food, eat yeah. this, eat the snack. Um, so, you know, when it comes down to, um, you know, I think a, a very good private lesson would be the coach is going to come to the house and say, "Okay, show me in the garage where you work out. Okay, show me your driveway workout. Show you you tell kids to do these things like, okay, get your stopwatch and measure twenty yards, measure forty yards, and but now, you know, I've, I, some of my students, um, they, the kids have to film it so you don't have to make a trip to the house. Show me do, you doing the routines in the garage. Show me doing the routines in the driveway. Yeah. Um, you know, 
I think a lot of junior tennis players, when it comes down to they get stuck in third grade, third grade mentality for tennis. It's like, come on, we need to go on. Let's work on some low half volleys mm-hmm. with, um, you know, most places, yes, most places for, you know, consumer knowledge is parents are told you have to take privates. You, you, you need to take privates to really work on, you know, getting attention for specific details. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's true. Um, with private lessons, uh, I would say something that Dennis Vandermeer, uh, I have the same type of thought. You know, I was influenced so much by Dennis is that a private lesson is registered. It's, it's, it's regulated by the cash register. Now people aren't going to drive to the tennis courts. You know, they're not going to drive 20 minutes away to take a five minute lesson, but in a lot of ways you're better off with 12, five minute lessons. Yeah. But now what happens is a tennis kid, you know, we have this article on the, our website, you got the buyer, the seller, and the taker. And the taker is the kid. They think of the lesson as the pro is seventy two hundred square feet. You know, they got a basket with three hundred balls, and they're sending me a ball and go, "That's it, nice job. That's it. You got it." Mm-hmm. And um, you know, really, when it comes right down to it, I think it's very, very overrated. Uh, in some ways, I would say, I don't want to contradict myself. Some ways I would say, well, you really can't argue with one-on-one. Um, the, um, you know, a lot of times people say, well, someone is warm and fuzzy. You know, they gave me the teddy bear approach. It wasn't the grizzly bear approach. They, they, they whispered to me in the private voice, not the public voice. If you're working with players who want to be really good, it's just one voice. I mean, think about other sports. Yeah. Well, we're going to call you over and, you know, say someone just missed their assignment in a football or basketball practice. It's not like, well, we'll have a consultation. We'll sit down afterwards and we'll <laughs> talk about it a little bit. Yeah. You know, it's Johnny on the spot. You got to fix it now. Yeah. I think, you know, my thought on the, just, okay, structuring a private, you know, just to give an example, if someone came in and they said, hey, I really want to you know, work on my serve. It's like, okay, well, you warm up some serves and then I'm going to film and obviously we're going to film. So we got them on tape so you could film, you could film from different angles, but for sure film. And then you can, like you say, diagnose, show them. Okay, here you go. Da da da. Here's where you can improve. And then like you said, get to work. I mean, you just got to, you got to fix the problem. So then it's just to go through logical progressions depending on where they need help. Um, And then you can, get it towards match play or randomness. It's say if it's a forehand or a backhand, you know, you could speed it up if it's a small band-aid type of fix, or if they need major surgery, then you're going to have to go through all kinds of, you know, drills where you slow things down, whether it's shadow swinging, hitting off a cone, then you might lead into drop hitting. And if they can pick up on each thing, you can progress forward. But if not, then you got to go back and slow things down again. So it kind of depends on where the player's at as far as their, problem solutions on on what they're doing. I mean, if it's a, they come in and they go, okay, I want to do a hitting lesson, then that's a totally different thing. But for the typical, okay, I want to work on my forearm, work on my backhand, warm up, film, and then, you know, start slow and then build up. Yeah, that's good. I think with Vandermeer, the relationship side, you know, when you're helping someone and you, you solve the problem, Diagnostically, there's a flaw, there's a cause, there's a cure. Yeah. You help them out in five minutes, and now they just got to go practice it exactly. and practice it. 
So it's almost like you're babysitting it, but that's where the relationship is like, well, I got so much one-on-one. They really care. They really like me. And it's just like, it makes the kid even softer. I mean, it's just, it's like, here, this is what you got to do. Go do it. Yeah. Um, You said it's, you can set them up with some things. Okay. Here's what you need to practice on your own. Here's this drill, this drill, this drill, this drill. Here's how to set up your garage. Here's what to do at home. Now go do it. And obviously they need feedback, you know, and that's where film and, Next week, okay, here's where we left off. Let's see where you're at. Here's what I told you to do. Did you do it? So there's some accountability there. One thing, one thing that didn't happen years ago in, pri- in college tennis is in college tennis, people were not, during their recruiting process, pro- promised private lessons. And then you get into the, you know, the NCAA rules, how many hours a week can you practice? Mm-hmm. Uh, going back to Bill Tim, um, you know, I, you know, Craig Tiley was at Illinois, you know, he'd give somebody a 10 minute lesson and say, okay, then, then he knew they only had to miss 10 minutes of practice Yeah, because they couldn't overtrain. Yeah. The tennis court has 7,200 square feet, um, 120 by 60. I was working with Tennis Corporation of America and they took um, 60 by 40. So they gave me 80 by 60. And I, because they took part of the court and made it, a cardio center. And then, you know, shortly afterwards they made the entire court a cardio center. And even after that, then they, they haven't been there since, but they renovated the entire club. But with that, we had three lanes and, you know, we had the mesh. So the, each lane was separate. We had three ball machines. We had a, a sign up said dedicated to Vic Braden. It explained that 19.1 degrees. It was certainly wasn't quite like his, uh, Hitting lanes. I know in one of these podcasts we're going to talk about Vic and, and length, and we'll have to talk about the Vic Braden Tennis Center. Time Magazine said it was the, the best tennis facility in creation. It was just it still is ahead of its time. But anyway, there were profit centers. It was one tennis court with three coaches working. It's really not in the best interest of a club, an indoor club, to say, "Well, we're going to have one private taught on that court." It's not healthy for tennis. I mean. It, indoor tennis clubs should be able to take one one court and you know just say okay we're gonna have all these portable backboards on one side all these teaching aids and you know you could have you know just one coach working that pride that that one court to to teach and so everybody could come in and pay five dollars to practice for the hour you get all the coaches on one page and then then you sit down with the owners everybody's got it's got to be a a win-win-win but you when you walk through an indoor tennis center and it's you know 7,200 square foot of lighted, heated space. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, actually when you first work with a tennis player and you do a videotape analysis, the last place they need to go is a tennis court. <laughs> they need to go in front of the mirror and they yeah. got to do these exercises against the wall and slow things down. Um, but I think application, you know, Peter Brewer watched the art is where you start and it's, it is labor intensive to do videotape in the beginning. But it's like, really, how could you not do it? I mean, now everybody's got a video camera in their pocket, their yeah, telephone. Exactly. Coming back to that smorgasbord is that, you know, even video type lessons is that then, you know, you can help, help everybody out. You know, when it comes down to um, a pro could be teaching a lesson on one court, have a camera on the fence on the next court. He organizes a lesson he's giving, and then he's organizing the match on the next court and he's working that camera, then he goes home and he charts it. So there's many ways to teach a coach how to make money off the court. 
but it just have it be it's a win 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 it's um you know again i think many times um people are spending too much for too little yeah let's uh do a few rapid fire here what are some common inefficient footwork you see i see toes up in the serve motion coil often so i mean yeah basically you know got some notes here you see all the time kids will shuffle step instead of using a crossover step kids are yeah, you know, yeah they all, shuffle always open stance you know it's like if someone's just teaching them you know you got to be open you got to be open stance but that's all they can do they, they're not able to step in and hit an approach shot or a forcing shot when a kid does hit open stance i think many people are saying well yeah, that's the modern game if you teach to step straight out oh you can't do that clay yeah. You have to be taught to slide on both feet. Yeah. When it comes down to um, then, when someone hits, always hits open stance, and then when they do hit off the front foot, they're maybe too close to the ball. The toe up on serve. I mean, if someone raises their front foot up, you know, if once they go back down, like Pete Sampras, then then you got to turn. Yeah. Was what he did, but you see a lot of players where they just you know they kind of rock back and that toe comes up, but then. There's no body rotation. I know that uh, you know a lot of people are following what we've assembled with all these different systems. Is to um, do you look at some of our players? They're they're just coming on their toe. They're not really on the ball, their foot, and coiling, turning their knee, their hip. Yeah, is, they haven't turned their body at all. They're just on their toe. Yeah. Um, and Don Leary's word picture method mashed the potato. Mm-hmm. Um, Squash the bug with. Um, you know, I think people running heavy, people running, um, you know, or just flat foot runners. Um, you know, when it comes down to something with Medvedev at the Australian Open, love how that guy just runs after every ball. So his opponent comes up to the net, they angle off a volley. He he runs until that ball is bounced the second time. Yeah. He, he just catches it on a second bounce and gives it to the nearest ball boy. Yeah. Um, the happy, you know, Bjorn Borg, uh, Rod Laver watched him. What do you think? Happy feet. How many shuffle steps to take, adjustment steps. Footwork is actually more important than racket and body work because it comes first. You know, and, and um, you don't like footwork, play golf. You know, you have to move. And, you know, with uh, working with a player right now who's a uh, slow twitch athlete and good size 14 shoes, he's slow twitch. And get him on a field and, you know, runs really well. Yeah. You know, breaking a five-minute mile on a field. And uh, by slower than dirt. Uh, so that, you know, that mentality, it's it's speed really, that for fast first step, it's, it has to be trained, but it's really more of an attitude than anything. Yeah. You got to just heard you say that a lot. love yeah. to run. Yeah. Yep. Um, favorite group or slash buddy system activity? Well, I just write down some things that we do here. I mean, touch football, ultimate frisbee, lightning ball is very much ultimate frisbee, wiffle ball. When I say relay races, kids love, little kids love relay races, but we've got a 400-meter track, and uh, let's have, you know, four against four, and you're each going to run 110s. Yeah. And, um, you know, I go way back to the tennis camp days for me is that kids, kids being placed on teams, earning points, and your points, you get to buy water balloons, you know, earn water balloons from your points. And and then all the coaches line up and the kids get to throw water balloons at the coaches. Yeah. And um, 
activities. I really miss boarding camps where we used to have um, uh, talent shows. Mm-hmm. It, it used to be fun, the talent shows. I think what's, you know, buddy system um, is the group dynamics that, that, you know, we do where we have the kids teaching the kids. For me, that's always fun to see where they get better, obviously, by teaching first so they understand the information, but then also the kids can relate to other kids so well. And the concentration level goes up. So, you know, a buddy system that way would just have the kids teach the kids. Yeah. Um, one, one thing here, um, I think we're ready for a combination episode about some cursive and signature. Your students have evolved stories. I think we could tell stories about players, parents, coaches, uh, but it comes from Mike Larshide. Yeah. Um, you're going to print you're going to be taught cursive, and then it's your signature, your autograph. So let's go through that. So this is the shape of A. This is the sound it makes. We agree upon that. Yeah. So now say your name is Andy, begins with A. So then we go with cursive. And, okay, we can say, okay, now we know what the A looks like in, in print format, cursive format. But then with signature, so that's where, you know, Mike, Larsha, I put together, I think it's fantastic because it's an injustice for people watching a Federer, watching a, um, a Nadal, these great players, and saying, okay, I'm going to watch them and then tell you this is how they, this is their secret. No, no. You got to find out what they did when they were 10, mm-hmm. what they did when they were 12. Yeah. So you don't teach signatures. You know, when it comes down to, I mean, some things, it's ceremony, it's idiosyncrasies. Um, and also, you know, let me just say yeah. inefficiencies. I mean, with the way Nadal starts his forehand with a ragged face open with his elbow down, his first initial move, you know, you don't want to copy that. <laughs> you know, yeah. and that's that's the problem is, and where I feel, you know, because I, when I first started playing tennis, I didn't have really coaching. It was like, okay, I just learned by watching some, you know, Agassi or Chang or whoever it was, and then try to copy them. And I think that's what a lot of young players do is they want to copy their heroes, but there's certain things they shouldn't try to copy. You go to a tennis teaching conference and assumption, don't assume to make an ass out of you and me. When it comes down to, it's almost like, well, we're not going to cover basics because we all know basics. And then in reality, that's not true. Hmm. Vince Lombardi, be brilliant with basics. There's too much of this going on is there people are trying to interpret the pro's signature. They're trying to interpret the pro's so-called style. And, you know, certainly it sells because the kid wants to be like Nadal. The kid wants to be yeah. like Roger. Yeah. And, you know, when it really comes right down to it, um, in this country, I think around the world, but in the U.S., um, I hear people say, well, the game is taught so well. Everybody has really good strokes. Really? Now, a lot of people that are saying that are in leadership positions. Like Wayne Bryant, fantastic for the game, amazing what he, he and his wife did with their uh, two sons. But to, to go out in the trenches and actually go to a local yokel tournament and how are people playing? And now I'd go watch high school tennis. Um, yeah. But no, I, and then... Many times people, they don't have the knowledge base to be comfortable, to be confident 
critiquing the pros. But if they if they were just be well read, you know, Roger Federer, well, I'd go to the you know, you're working with Edberg, you can go to the net like he did if I could volley like him. And yeah. Edberg had better volleys. Yeah. As far as when you say that, it's not well the movement, the athleticism. No, just as far as efficiency, like you said. Okay, what does he do? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, on the flip side of it, uh, Stefan did A-OK. Um, Wimbledon champion, I mean, uh, US Open champion. He uh, did A-OK. Um, I remember when he played Chang on, on clay. I mean, he was just in. He had a, he, had, he got by on his forehand, but he didn't want to hit too many forehands. Yeah. That's one of the reasons he went to the net. It's like it's like McEnroe. Why did McEnroe go to the net? Was it his temperament? Was the fact he was from New York City? He had the same grip as Lendl. Lendl stayed back, but Lendl took the back the continental grip on the back of the side and pushed the wrist pushed the wrist down. Yeah, and then lifted up from the shoulder. McEnroe had to roll it and goes, "I'm only going to try to do this a few times." Yeah, and it, it was a combination of things, but it was the techniques that he and he ended up playing on clay. He grew up on clay, but you know, so he's. You know, he just, he knew by having ball boy at the Forest Hills tournaments that, okay, I'm playing big time now, and now i got to go to the net. But he just went to the net. Yeah. Okay. A um, couple more here. Best favorite mind vitamins to share with players? You know, that's a road trip. You know, you get, um, you know, you get in the van and go, okay, Say you get two coaches and the kids are there. Get your notebooks out and you go. You just go mind vitamin after mind vitamin. Yeah, I mean I could do that for you know a long, long journey. Yeah, uh, I just wrote down uh, three and three. Um, I do have a few of my own, but this one I love and, and there's just not enough time. But um, kid was born on third base and thinks he hit a triple. Mm-hmm. Barry Switzer. Mm-hmm. You know, say it again. Kid was born on third base and thinks he hit a triple. Uh, Lou Holtz. Kids used to ask what are their obligations and responsibilities, and now they ask what are their rights and privileges. Um, Doug Davis. Uh, he's a tennis coach in Austin, Texas. Um, I don't know Doug very well, but um, I was watching uh, Ashley Weinold play. who's was a very good junior player, and her parents at one time were students of mine. So he, he was coaching her at the time. We were at the Eddie Hur and he just said, Steve, we're standing among the weakest kids on the planet. And it's not that, you know, it's not to make anybody feel bad, but it's like, wait a minute, you know, and then why, why would you say that? Well, tennis kids, there's, no, there's not a connection between the bench and the brain. You know, they do what they want, when they want. Yeah. And, you know, um, you know, they're not riding a bus. They're not learning being on a team. They don't really know what a depth chart is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not like, um, okay, I made the freshman team and now I hope to make the JV team and then I want to make the varsity. I've coached so many kids because as a supplemental coach, students send us students, coaches yeah. send us students. And, you know, the kids of freshman high school, I mean, I'm talking almost every kid who's sent here. Well, are you the best player in your high school? Oh, uh, yeah. And then it's like, they're not even playing high school tennis. Mm-hmm. That's another one. Um, the program needs to be bigger than the individual. Yeah, I, I put so. the, I put this down um, with. Uh, um, it takes a village to raise a child. I just added this to it, but no one tells you where it is or how to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, 
accomplishing your dreams is a nightmare of work. Yeah, it's one of my favorites. Um, you know, maybe, maybe this, uh, just like, say, Coach Davis, uh, wouldn't be considered necessarily mind vitamin. We're standing among the weakest kids on the planet. Here's one. Don't become the typical American tennis kid. Mm. Um, you know, and that's where, again, kids get beat up. And, you know, they're entitled. They're empower, empowered. You know, they're spoiled. They're soft. You know, it's like, well, it's, you know, not to hurt their feelings, but it, it is what it, it is, is that, um, you know, um, but no, I, we, we could come back to that uh, mind vitamins. Well, do you have one no, or two? Yeah, a few. As you, you know, we already mentioned tonight, be brilliant with the basics. I think that's a great one. Just like, hey, basics, basics, basics. And then, um, you know, Vic Braden's laugh and win. I think that's a good philosophy just to keep your brain functioning and, and working uh, on the process and enjoying the process. And then the other one that, you know, recently we've talked about a lot with uh, Iga Shvientek's psychologist or mental coach saying that, you know, she promotes with, with Iga just having really high standards and low expectations. So I think that's great. Just to have, I don't know, always have a high standard. Cell phone's a dream killer. Yeah. Um, those short quips. Um, and, the, and, and, you know, it was the same when you and I were kids. It's all, it's all the same. They got to hear it over and over again. Yeah. Are you all in? Yeah. Are you a one or a two? Next time you have bacon and eggs for breakfast, remember the chicken was involved, but the pig was committed. <laughs> All right. Um, the, this is about the great base backboard. Um, now it's the same kind of backboard has um, been out as the all-in-one backboard as well. But the great base backboard, do-it-yourself tips. Well, so many things. Uh, you know, hand-eye coordination. You don't need a tennis racket. It comes down to you know can a young four year old roll the ball up rolls rolls it down and they catch it and they're four or five years old they're they're tossing it underhand uh, then can you say then you creativity put the ball on your hand on your head pretend you use an helicopter the cowboy with the last two and you they're throwing the ball this way then they mm-hmm. got to catch it you know as with coming back to telephones as the kids today. Um, I heard that same comment when I was a kid, you know, hey, you're watching too much TV. Mm-hmm. Kids today can't catch the ball and throw the ball. And because they're not catching the ball, throwing the ball. Uh, yeah. Teaching hand-eye coordination. But then you, you get uh, two players, um, say, hitting ground strokes. It's much better than just one. And then you get two people hitting, you got to go much faster. You got to get out of each other's way. Yeah. So you, going back to the little kids, but the big kids, you can take any drill, scale it up, scale it down, take two balls. You know, they're throwing one with their right hand and one with their left. And, you know, Peter Burwatch, who we'll talk about, yeah, he did all sorts of uh, uh, dynamic drills to make people be more coordinated with, um, you know, it comes down to like kids don't want to hit a ball off a stationary tee. They do it in baseball. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can't do it in tennis. <laughs> Why is that? So in baseball, they have the on-deck circle. Kids, they're going to shadow swing before it's their turn to bat. Yeah. But... Um, we tell kids, all right, and they love the shadow swing. If you say, okay, take your skip rope, uh, do 40 jumps, and then hit four off the cone. Yeah. Oh, they take their time hitting those four off the cone because yeah. they got to go right back to doing 40 jumps. Yeah. You know, they say, okay, make them double jumps. Uh, you can have a kid hit a ball off a cone. You know, they just 
the right spacing. They make the step back, step over, call it the letter L. They mm-hmm. go slow motion. And, you know, the orange pylon, the orange cone, just hit yellow, the cherry off the ice cream cone. But be switched on. Grow myelin at a fast rate. Yeah. Don't be too cool for school. So, okay, now you do four, and then you go against the backboard, and you hit 40. Yeah. You hit 44 hands in a minute. Go fast with your feet. You know, when people first get a backboard, uh, they should drop hit balls against it. Yeah. They're not good enough to rally against it. Even though the incline forces people to swing up. Um, with, I think the portable backboards are very much like a domestic stationary bicycle. You know, when people go into a commercial gym, they're going to get on the bike. They pay their dues. They've driven there. They parked their car. They've walked in. They go to the locker room. Okay, I'm going to work out. But they put one in their house and it's like, well, tomorrow. Yeah. And it just becomes a clothes rack. Yeah. Um, you know, unfortunately, um, and I know they're working uh, um, on, on having the price come down and, and making, making, making some adjustments with it. But it's kind of like the, the pocket calculator. If more people were to buy it, the price would come down. You know, I'd love to see like a Larry Ellison who loves tennis. Uh, one of the top five wealthiest people in the world. You want to help American tennis is let's get these things all over the place. Yeah. You know, let, how, how can we get kids to hit more balls? Yeah. Um, you can play sets. Yeah. Um, the, um, you know, you actually in group setting, you can, you can have, you know, say you get four people, you hit one, you run under the backboard and come around. So there's, there's, and we, there's a lot of drills online. Where yeah, we have some on the YouTube channel as well. When I first read that, and maybe maybe this is it, but it's a great base backboard do-it-yourself tip. If it's to make your own backboard, but I, yeah, I don't know if that was um, any kind of meaning behind yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, people have tried, but... Um, yeah, it's just really, it comes from a teaching he made in the 80s, in this country, it was called Tennis Mate. Yeah. In Sweden, it was called Tennis Partner. I used to make it mandatory for juniors to have them. So did the French Tennis Federation, the Swedish Tennis Federation. Uh, in this country, it was made in Charlotte, North Carolina. And then I wasn't smart enough. So it was like 10 years went by and I go, and, you know, so we just started making them. Yeah. And then Jeff Lewis, uh, who we trained to teach tennis, great tennis teacher, he's into it. Um, he really... Um, with his father's help, put the great base backboard together and um, 40 balls in a minute. Yeah. But people get them and they don't, they don't use it. And, you know, that's like, you know, 3%. You know, we played this song with the Green Beret, 100 tested. You know, 100 tested, three, 3 make it, basically. It's one of the lyrics. It's not verbatim. And then 3% of, you, you know, of, of 100 tennis players. Three out of 100 are going to play college tennis. You tell 100 kids, hit the backboard, 100 kids shadow swing in front of the mirror, three are going to do it. Yeah. The number's low. Yeah. And it's unbelievable. It'd be, you know, how you become great is you do ordinary, the ordinary and extraordinary amount. That's a mind vitamin. Yeah. Um, you know, it's so, um, the, um, the backboard at one time, you, you could make it, just get directions but um, I think you could just contact us with info yeah. at Great Base, and that we could, could be put you in touch again. Yeah. All right. Last question: Best way to honor the library of info put on the website 
especially when it comes through sharing it through social media. But yeah, best way to honor the library of info we put on the website. Yeah, I think of Joey Johnson. We talked to Joey and Spencer. Spencer, we've worked with for a long time. In fact, I need to talk to him. I watched him play recently, mm-hmm. and I've got to call him this week. Now the Australians open, I need to catch up on some things. And um, so Joey sent me students for years, and the first thing I asked him, have you read his book? And I think it's, again, I think it's three. I really, I all the students, I think, I think I, I'd have to talk to Joey about it. Three people have read it. And um, so we have a course that's 25 hours, give or take. And it's pretty boring. <laughs> there's, no, there's not much of a plot. It's not. No, but there's a lot of information in there. But the thing is, is that, you know, and it's, we got we want to improve upon it redo yeah. it but when it when it comes down to it um you know, like how you know tennis kids their own library do they have a library card do tennis kids have a library card and you find out the answer is no mm. do they check out books from the because library libraries on their phone now <laughs> yeah <laughs> so that, i'm not I'm, not I'm not tuned into that world but but when it comes down to um yes kids and they got to do their school work first that's number one but if you read this autobiography, that autobiography, and they're, you think they would want to, hey, I want to read that book on Agassiz. I want to read that book on Sampras. Yeah. And um, so I think right away, people should start to formulate their own library. I think parents should give reading assignments. Mm. Like, oh, your kid wants to play tournaments? Well, right now where they are, they got to break a 630 mile. Ah, uh, no, that kid's got to break a 530 mile. They're not playing tournaments until they break a 530 mile. Yeah. And then also, you know, reading. You know, it's like the the people, the parents, for example, that we train, they need to get Vic Braden's Tennis for the Future or Tennis 2000. How could you not read that? And, um, you know, when it comes down, if people really study what we've assembled, they will be able to evaluate whether a tennis teacher is competent or not. Yeah. And it's like, really? It's like, you know, just when it comes down to... so. Just answer the question, coursework. Kid comes out, we make a film for them. Do they watch it three times? Do they send us notes? We tell them, go watch the course, Great Base. How the Great Base came about, it's a course It's less than two hours. Uh, filmed it in Russia. Jeff Lewis helped me out with it. When it comes down to, um, we first made tennis intelligence applied. Miron Mann was an intern. He was yeah. the go-to guy helped me make that. So we make tennis intelligence applied, and I find out people really, for the most part, they only want to go through a course like that if it's tied in with academic credit, if they're going to get the diploma. <laughs> and it's like, well, okay, we'll make a short version. So that's where we made the great base course. So then to watch how to practice. You know, people ask me quite often about uh, Victor Lilov. Uh, he, uh, you know, it's all documented. It, it just it just worked out where Mark Spann was from South Africa. His mother recently passed away. She he was born into tennis. She won a Wimbledon doubles title. Mm. So he told me that this kid is passionate about tennis. And over the years, Mark has sent me so many people, but he's only sent me. He goes, no, he just has his read on it. He goes, no, they don't want to go to your place. They're just kind of hit and giggle. But this, this kid really wants to be good. And so there's, we have a course on how to practice at home. And 
Um, so he was just eight years old. His sister was a scholar, Radina, and and uh, so they both check in, and because we wouldn't take an eight-year-old, but she was there, you know, making these great meals for him and just you know being more than the big sister. And um, but there's a course, and it shows him at age eight, nine, hitting off the cone, and then you know he wins the Orange Bowl, he wins the Lapatisse, and um, so. That, that should be enough to get, well, okay, that works. Um, and that's one thing that we have in our library is, um, I was telling a story the other day about, because we have some interns and they're in meetings. You know, they let these interns come in and listen to meetings. So at one time I was in a meeting with uh, a Canadian dad. I trained him to teach tennis and his son, you know, like Victor, he became really good. He was number one in Canada, you know, 10s, 12s. 14s. He, he used to, he used to beat up on Dennis Shapovalov. Yeah. And um, so his dad, he, he just said, you know, he, you know, very abruptly, but I can handle abrupt with abrupt. And he said, I don't think these interns should be in this meeting. I said, four years ago, you didn't know how to keep score. <laughs> so, you know, you were an intern. So I, I really think when it comes down to coursework first, daily you know people should look at instagram um i know that you've been putting up instagram every day for over a year well people have to go backwards now mm-hmm. it's like no i'll just look at what they're doing like, no you're behind yeah and we've even talked about you know, certification gamification if kids were to get points for watching those clips yeah and what what they're doing and certainly there's a lot of reinforcement is they're developing their tennis mind you're developing a tennis IQ. Then there's the emotional quotient. So the IQ, EQ, but um, so they can, people can backlog. Um, you know, I actually, when we put tennis intelligent apply together, I thought young coaches would look at it enough where, and some have, some have, but where they look at it and, you know, if someone's, if someone read, reads Braden's books, for example, it's just, you know, you talk about the Bible of tennis because it's just fact-based through and through. Yeah. And it's, it's facts that stand the test of time. Yeah. I mean, physics is not a fad that um, people that we've trained, you know, they start a sentence and, you know, other people could finish the sentence for yeah. them. So um, I, I think, uh, you know, say Matt Clore, for example, um, I had always heard of Matt because he was born in 1984 and I coached a kid, uh, Ryder to who was born in 84. And I knew he was a great player, but in juniors, so one of the best Americans, but I had never seen him play. And so I, he, my son played when he was a college coach. My son first played at Florida state, then he transferred to Ohio state. So Matt was, I mean, he was a star player, Florida state. He's uh, what do they call it? Uh, he was an all American, but he's uh, all university or your Florida state hall of fame. Mm. And, I remember my son saying, nobody can beat Matt. And I go, come on, he's not even playing anymore. He's, he's coaching, he's got a little baby boy. And, and um, but what, you know, I know Matt, uh, he just, he took an hour a day. It's called continuing education. And, um, you know, obviously he learned so much about tennis through his father, but, you know, when it comes down to, um, you know, Craig Tiley's name comes up many times because he's not, per se, maybe not a coach now, 
I would say obviously he's in charge of coaches because he's in charge of the Australian Tennis Federation, is um, need information. And so, for example, with Craig Tiley, like so many people that I introduced to Pete Braden, eventually, you know, everybody felt like Vic was his uncle. But I remember Gordon Smith, the executive director of the USTA, um, you know, we, we exchanged some, some emails and um, with Craig Tiley, when he went to Illinois, if Vic Braden walked in the room, he wouldn't have known Craig Tiley. But Craig Tiley knew Vic Braden, the resource. And that's what it is. And it's still there, the information. And, you know, I was talking to someone from China yesterday and they asked me about tennis in China. Vic Braden's, um, it was for Israel, it was for many countries. Yeah. Tennis for the Future was the go-to book mm -hmm. for the Federation. And at one time, one of the coaches from the West was there and he told a group of coaches, about 20 coaches, and this is true, they actually, this actually happened, is bring in the Braden books and we'll have a bonfire. Yeah, it's crazy. Like it's that's obsolete, and um, you know, water does not run uphill. The tennis court is not a circle. There's certain things that people need to agree upon, but a filtering system. If people go were to go through um, our content, uh, you know, they're gonna they're gonna find out it's not you know Andy Fitzell, Steve Smith stuff. Yeah, the second part of that, just you know sharing things on social media. Yeah, you know, I'm big on giving credit where credit is due. So if there's a tidbit of information that you want to share, just to let, let people know where you learned it. And uh, I think, I hope people like the podcast. Maybe we'll do some more, but um, I'm thinking about coming back and playing on the tour. Yeah, you know, all my extensive time on the tour, I'm pretty tired, but... Um, I've heard uh, people say, you know, I... I, I can be a little bit of a wise guy. Someone will introduce themselves. Hi, I'm I'm Joe. I'm a high performance coach. Oh, hi, I'm Steve. I'm a low performance yeah. coach. I'll hear some people say, "Yeah, I played on the tour." I said, "Did you say Stewart?" Yeah. <laughs> or they said, "I played on the circuit." No, no. Did you say circus? Yeah. Um, no, I just think that uh, um, you know when it, when it comes down to, it, I understand those questions about you know what level did you play at, um, yeah. but you know. Um, I make Matt Clore laugh once in a while. He's an excellent player. He comes out of here, hits some balls, hangs out. His daughter's learning here. And uh, I say, hey, Clore, I, I teach better than you play. <laughs> so when, when it comes down to it, I wish there were tournaments for teaching beginners. <laughs> you, know, I've, you know, somebody's going to get lucky and get the kid who's a little more athletic, and someone's going to teach the kid who's got uh, two left feet and puts, as Vic would say, puts the ice cream cone in their forehead. Exactly. But that's how you judge a program. You judge a program yeah. by, the, unfortunately, the kid who's taking that ice cream cone. If you can get that kid to play, then you can really teach tennis. Yeah. Um, I think there's so many merchants of flesh. Um, with, uh, I have a brother who was, was in charge of three financial hockey teams, and you know they're looking for players. They're they're not they're, they okay. They want to develop talent, they, yeah. but they're they're looking for people that are ready to play in the NHL. Um, and you know, when it comes down to, um, you know, that's what I really respect about someone like Welby Vic is that they took beginners 
you know, even like C athletes and made them A players. Mm -hmm. You take a beginner and now they're knocking on the door to win a national junior tournament. Mm -hmm. Um, So hopefully the podcast, um, Instagram, Facebook, whatever, LinkedIn, the whole nine yards. um, YouTube. People are zeroing in and, uh, and this will help them with teaching and playing. Yeah. No, thanks everybody for listening. Um, went through pretty thorough some questions and we'll continue to do more of these, I think in the future as well. Do we do it under 20 minutes? Yeah. <laughs> Something like that. Uh, there, there may be some other questions and comments that we can put out here shortly as well. And, uh, yeah, as always, you can check us out on on our website, greatbasetennis.com, and social media at greatbasetennis. And until next time, we're signing off. Appreciate you listening. Yeah, thanks. Adios.